Fear not, dream big, and execute. Tools to spark your dream and ignite your follow-through. A book written and narrated by Jeff Meyer. Forward. Most dreams die before they ever get a chance to grow. It's not failure that kills them. It is fear. This could be one of the reasons why fear not is one of the most common commands of God to his followers in the Bible. Because fear is real. Even for leaders, especially for leaders, our dreams are usually untapped. We don't dream big. We dream little. God has created you to dream. He urges you to crave your own big dream. You are not created to merely carry out someone else's. You are created to live a life of service, yes, but service can be weighty if we don't unearth our own unique God-given vision. We'll soon be buried under expectations unless we uncover a simple rhythm that helps us implement our dream. In this book, I want to explore these truths. When I work with ministry professionals, Jesus followers and those in the help profession, I see a common twofold pattern. One, Christian leaders are hesitant to dream, and even when they do, two, they often fail to execute. Many have never envisioned their future with the clarity required to realize such a future. They struggle to identify and articulate a clear forward direction, and so they adopt the expectations of others in place of their own. Eventually, this hazy rudderlessness compromises their very identity. And no one can rest easy if they lack a basic foundation. What I want to do here is spark unsettled leaders to envision their future with the clarity necessary for realization. And by giving them simple ideas they can put into practice, this book will encourage them to pursue their future with relentless determination. This is my hope for you, and not just for you, but for the many who will benefit from the realization of your dream. Look, you are an influence of those around you already. As such, you may as well put in the effort to make that influence as positive as you'd like it to be. I invite you to join me in this worthy pursuit. The lessons contained in this book come from one who is with you on the journey. It is not that I have mastered these lessons, but I have felt the benefit of continued efforts to abide by them. If I could borrow Paul's words to the Philippians for a moment, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Philippians 3.12 Yeah, it's like that. Once the dream is sparked, Execution is imperative. There is no magic bullet. Resilience and mental fortitude are needed. You will need to learn how to overcome resistance and obstacles. This little book of lessons will aid you in doing that. So if you could stand to diminish fear in your life, and you get excited about the notion of dreaming big, and you would like to work on focusing your attention, utilizing your gifts, removing distractions, and increasing your productivity, then read on. To be a co-creator with him for the benefit of others is life's most fulfilling purpose. How to make this book work for you. 
I have divided this book into two parts. One part is focused on discovering your dream, dream sparks, the other on realizing the dream, realization strategies. Start wherever you find that you need the most support. If you're a discipline machine, but are not really sure where you're headed, start with part one. If you have a dream yet find it difficult to execute, go ahead and start with part two. You may also find it more advantageous to pick and choose chapter titles that scratch an itch. These chapters are not sequential. To help with this method, I have placed a checklist of chapters in the audiobook companion PDF. You can use that to mark off the chapters as you complete them. Most importantly, take time with the contents. Sit and reflect with each lesson. Complete the exercises in the Try This sections. No, seriously. Commit to following through, or this book could end up like every other book on your shelf. I want this book to facilitate real change in your life, and that requires commitment on your part. Consider this a journal prompting, behavioral adjustment tool. We don't master something by reading it. We master by living it. And finally, please share your discoveries with me at jeffmeyer.org or drop me a note at jeff at jeffmeyer.org. I would love to hear from you. Part 1. Dream Sparks. Lesson 1. Sit for a spell. Talking rock doesn't actually talk, but you might hear something if you sit on it long enough. On our way back to Atlanta, somewhere near Jasper in northern Georgia, my wife Amy and I noticed a sign inviting us to turn off to Talking Rock. We launched into a discussion about how amusing it would be if the rock actually talked, kept up conversation, made the occasional snide comment. We were in a playful mood. Pretty sure the rock doesn't talk. Unless, of course, God decided to make it talk. After all, he did make water pour out of one. Check out Exodus 17. A quick search, and I discovered that Talking Rock isn't a rock at all. It's a town. Talking Rock's history is rich with stories about the Trail of Tears, the Civil War, the Railroad, and the Great Depression. The origination of our town's name is unclear, and there are many interesting stories regarding its derivation. Some individuals believe that it's from the noise of the water rolling over the rocks in our beautiful creek, while others like the story of folks sitting for a spell on a rock to have a talk with a neighbor. Still others believe that the name originated with the local Indians. Sitting for a spell on a rock to talk to a neighbor. I like that explanation. Let's go with that. You might hear something important if you sit for a spell. With a neighbor, with a friend, with your loved one, with God even. My friend Greg likes to use this formula in his ministry to encourage people to sit for a spell because he knows the truth of talking rock. The formula is proximity plus unhurried time equals friendship. James 4 verse 8 says, Draw near to God, 
and he will draw near to you. Proximity and unhurried time. Space, time, intentionality and boundaries. You choose to. You create space to. We're so busy. We're so isolated. The rhythms of our days impact friendship with others and with God. So we have to create the time and space. Abraham was described as God's friend. He created the time and space to cultivate his unique friendship with God. It's not complicated. We get to know others better when we sit with them over time. Again and again. It's no wonder why so many Jesus followers today have trouble dreaming. There is a lesson here. Sit for a spell. If we hope to discover a dream, we will need to stop and listen. Intentional space and place dedicated to listening, considering, wondering will be absolutely critical if we ever hope to discover a God-ordained dream. We carve out time on our calendars to do all sorts of things. Schedule time to dream. Pick a morning every week. Take a day a month. Place some talking rock time at the beginning and end of every day. Establish space that works for you. You're free to do this. You don't need anyone else's permission. Find it. Schedule it. Don't miss your appointment. Lesson two. People are not used to being coached. Coaching sparks dreams. Self-knowledge, courage to take risks, support, and focused energy are among the gifts for the individual who finds a coach. Many miss these gifts. Most people are used to being preached at. They've grown accustomed to being told what to do. Self-knowledge is rare. The energy to think deeply, to inspect, and be introspective is hard to come by. Consequently, many rely on others' answers instead of finding their own. This is one of the main reasons why inspiring dreams are rare and why we tend to grind out our days working on someone else's dream instead of our own. People expect me as a leader to have answers for them. Others in my professional tribe have noted such expectations and the pressure that comes along with them. The problem with providing answers for people is that it's not helping them grow. It's not helping them dream. People are like sheep, the scriptures say. Sheep don't have their own best answers. They are led. They are taught. They are shepherded. Sheep don't dream. Why then are we supposed to count them to help us sleep? Hmm? I believe this line of thinking about sheep leads many to expect another to give them answers, and through the years has led the shepherds to settle for giving answers. Leaders too often tell their followers what to do instead of inspiring them to find their own way. I get it. I really do. I understand what the scriptures say about the human condition. I concur that through the ages, God has sent prophets, leaders, pastors, evangelists, teachers, parents, kings, and all those in authority 
and he's doing it today. Yet there is a way to respect and obey these authorities without becoming proverbial sheep. Yes, my good shepherd restores my soul. He guides me along streams of living water for his name's sake. And those who faithfully lead will help us live out our unique calling and fulfill our purpose. God has never intended for us to be puppets on a string, blindly marching along to carry out the desires of magistrates. He has placed leaders and guides in our lives to redirect, realign, and realize our contribution for His name's sake. Simply being told what to do is not working to help people to grow. Preaching alone is not assisting people to own their dream, nor is it yielding behavioral transformation in pursuit of those divine imprints. The lack of interested supporters in our lives and in the lives of the people we influence is keeping people dependent on the expert. Perhaps you even picked up this book because you thought it might give you access to some golden dream nugget. I hate to disappoint. You can access the Creator, your Creator. You can discover your dream without an intermediary placed over you simply telling you what you should do or how you should live. God has created you with your own divine dreams in your DNA. The best guidance comes from people who help you discover your own answers as you seek God. Even looking at our expert leader, Jesus, whose word is life, we can see this lesson lived out. Jesus is not merely an itinerant preacher who directs our steps. He is a soul-stirrer who invites us to walk with him. If our Master Jesus leads us by walking with us and stirring us to discover, then these earthly leaders must learn to come alongside and help others discover their own best answers. Our leaders and experts must become experts in helping those they serve discover how to listen to the true expert. And here's the key. For themselves. That is, if we want to see people increasingly apply what they learn. If we want people to dream. If fear keeps people from dreaming, then fear can also keep our leaders from helping others dream. Fears that individuals' dreams may conflict with the leader's dream, fears that they are actually ill-equipped to guide people, fears that this kind of alongside partnership is too demanding and intimate, fears that they will be found as lacking any dream of their own. Telling people what they should do or think allows leaders to keep a certain relational distance. The ability to dream belongs to everyone. In order to unleash this great movement of dreamers, we as leaders will need to effect a shift. This shift will require us to ask powerful, soul-stirring questions instead of giving quick expert answers, encouraging each person to find his or her own way. Exhibit patience and commitment to long-term, enduring relationships. 
transform teaching environments from transactional events to self-discovery adventures. Allow our teacher-trainer the space to ask us the powerful, soul-stirring questions that will unlock transformational discoveries for ourselves. Temper our defensiveness. We must learn to listen to what others say. Take constructive criticism. Get outside of our own heads and consider other perspectives. And appreciate virtues like singularity of vision and stick-to-itiveness in our leaders without necessarily adopting all of their answers as our own. There are two sides to this lesson. The side that you are on when you live as a leader to another and the side that you live on as you are influenced by other leaders. On one side of the equation, the question stands, will you allow yourself to be coached? On the other side, there is a similar question. Will you redirect your energies to coach others? Both are humbling propositions. Let us devote ourselves to helping others follow Jesus. And in the process of placing them in his care, help them discover their dream and pursue it with freedom and boldness. Lesson 3. Jesus is your point of reference and your peace of mind. As I write this, I just signed up for a race called Ragnar. It's a 200-mile road relay race that you run as a part of a team of 12. It has a specific route with some sections tougher than others. Team members take portions based on their ability. Each teammate runs three portions, totaling at least 12 miles over a 24-hour period. There are a lot of unknowns. I don't know how my body will feel on race day. I have no idea what the weather will be. At this point, five months before the race, I only know one of my teammates. I don't know what kind of runners they are or how they will respond to the challenge. As I understand it, I am the lone rookie on the team. They've all run other Ragnars, so I can lean on their experience. I'm sure it will take great endurance. I've never run back-to-back-to-back 10Ks before. To compensate for all of this ignorance, I possess something invaluable, a critical point of reference, a map. I look at the map, and I see the route, distance, location, and elevation, all neatly delineated. I know where we are headed. Sure, there will be twists and turns along the way, but if I study the map, I can anticipate every bend in the road and even the slightest incline. In like manner, I coach myself to fix my eyes on Jesus. In the beginning, when I'm trying to discover my dream, in the middle, when I'm tempted to quit, and at the end, when achievement is within reach, I must focus my attention on Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Once a dream has been sparked, the way will be marked out for you, one step after another, as long as your eyes are fixed on Jesus. 
He both blazes the trail and smooths the path. He is the one who initiates and sustains our life of faith. He is the one who sparks and helps us realize the dream. On a deep sea fishing excursion off the Atlantic coast, I learned a valuable lesson. It was simple. Keep your eyes focused on the horizon. Don't stare at the waves or look down. Do this and you won't get sick. It worked. Three-foot waves did not shake me. Unlike some of the others on board, I kept nausea at bay. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus as you pursue the dream and you will get your sea legs. You will stay even keeled. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121. But I must confess something. Most days, I find it difficult to maintain my focus on God. I catch myself looking down over the edge of the boat at the waves. My mind is frequently scattered and distracted. Any attempt to concentrate seems absurd. I can't make my mind do anything it doesn't want to do. Random thoughts pop in and join the dissonant chorus. Jumbled with words, images, and memories, my mind spins. I struggle to orient myself. It's as if I've lost my map. For the Christian leader, dreaming big, dreaming clearly, starts with a liberated mind. That mind, cleared of its clutter and released to soar with God, is a remarkable place of creativity. You and I are not doomed to our usual self-defeating patterns. We can break free. And that freedom comes from God. He is your mind's creator. He is the source of your mind's freedom. He is your crucial point of reference. He will show you the way and keep you balanced. Sounds great. But how do I do this, you may be asking. Like all of the Christian life, one must apply this lesson through intentional and disciplined practice. Consider the following spiritual practices. The three M's. Marinate. Sit with shorter sections of Scripture long enough that your mind settles and fresh insights from the Word reveal themselves. I use a methodology called 30 Things. I first learned of it in the introduction to Timothy Keller's book, Encounters with Jesus, Unexpected Answers to Life's Biggest Questions. It's quite simple. Sit with a short passage for 30 minutes and write down 30 things. They can be any combination of questions, observations, and insights. Then pick one or two that really stand out to you. I rarely gain deep insight from God instantly. I have to earn it. Knowledge and discernment emerge only with time. They reside below the surface, underneath layers of assumption. In order to uncover what is buried, I will need to sit and contemplate for a while. The key here is time. This is why I use the word marinate. Meat must sit and rest a while in the spices to assimilate them. In order for steak or chicken to soak in the spice and be really affected by the special sauce, it needs to be immersed in it. It's the same for our minds. 
We have become accustomed to instant gratification. We must master the art of abiding. Pause. Linger. Tarry. Wait. Stick around. Remain. Dwell. It would be of great benefit for us as Christian leaders to marinate. The second M is memorize. I remember well my confirmation experience back in the late 1970s. Attending my father's confirmation class was quite formative in many ways. One way in particular was all the memorization, long passages of scripture committed to memory before I could move on to the next section of the catechism. He assigned one page of 50 passages per part of Luther's small catechism. I practiced at home, usually reciting passages from memory to my poor mother in order to get that checked off my to-do list. As much as I sometimes resented having to do that routine, I really appreciate it today. Some 35-plus years later, I can still call to mind many passages. I could be doing more today with this discipline. It would benefit me tomorrow by giving me the promise of God to hold on to, tuck away the truth for use later, inscribe it on the mind, make it stick. The key here is repetition. We fill our minds with so many things. Why not the life-giving, spirit-empowering Word of God? In an age in which the opinions of men dominate our mental landscape, we need to make the extra effort to hold on to God's truth. It would be of great benefit for us as Christian leaders to memorize Scripture. If you have never tried memorizing Scripture, here are a few to get you started. Romans 5, verse 8. 1 John 1, verse 1. John 3, 16 and 17. John 1, 14. Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. If you're up for the challenge of a longer section, this is one of my favorites. The third M is meditate. Add to this a steady regimen of guided meditation, and you can train your mind to think on these things. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Philippians 4, verse 8. Pay attention to breathing. Pay attention to where the body holds tension. Scan the body thoroughly and quietly. Legs, back, neck, jaw, feet hands, arms, wrists, shoulders, even face. Observe the condition of your body and to what is happening in your mind. Pay attention to it. Don't try to control it. Let it go and learn to redirect it back. Allow breath to enter and exit. Healthy rhythms. Deep breathing versus shallow. Clear, bright light filling the body. And with each outbreath, tension and worries carried away and removed with each exhalation. In and out, 
Commit to this practice just a few minutes each day, and you will see benefits soon. The key here is rest. Don't try to do anything with what you are receiving at first. Simply hold it. Embrace it. Take it in. Breathe and receive. Rest in the moment, in the present, and become fully alive with Christ. Enjoy breathing. Relaxed but attentive posture. Upright yet not tense. Pay attention. Breathing has been shown to help with anxiety, insomnia, restlessness, focus, pain, and a host of other ailments that affect our health and wellness. We are complete whole beings. Our spirituality is not separated from our physical, emotional selves. This brief introduction to guided meditation is not in any way a comprehensive or even expert discourse. It would be of great benefit for us as Christian leaders to meditate. Here are a few of the resources I like to use to help guide my meditation practice. A Christian meditation podcast. Pray as you go. The Headspace app. Marinate, memorize, and meditate. Spend time. Repeat scripture until it sticks and meditate. Lesson four. I wasn't born with a self-concept. There are certain characteristics I was born with that I have in my DNA. And there are many traits that I have acquired through the unique experiences in my journey. Among these is the opinion I hold about myself. It has been developing throughout my life. This is good news. It means that I can reform it. Not everything I subconsciously hold to be true about my identity, self-worth, value is true. Plagued by many negative and self-defeating thoughts about myself, I can train my mind to believe the truth. And here is the truth. That training comes by deliberately and consistently taking in the identity-shaping words of my Creator. What has helped shape my identity to this point? Culture, family, circumstances, good and bad, words spoken to me or about me, replayed narratives that are on a never-ending loop, expectations of others, traditions, denominational heritage, education, diagnoses, all mixed together with God's Word sprinkled in. Do you see anything wrong with this picture? Sprinkling isn't enough. Only God has the full and true understanding of who I am. Therefore, I must seek Him to have an accurate and true view of who I am. I do not get some blessing from God in discounting myself, Neither do I get an accurate understanding of me without him. Sprinkling isn't enough. Perhaps you guard against the kinds of opinions that poison our own self-image. But it's more likely that you, like so many of us, have listened closer to criticism than to praise 
and have given others' damaging view of yourself a fixed position in your psyche. Many dreamers have. This reality can be one of the biggest dream wreckers. If I feel I am incapable, that I have nothing to offer, what happens when God puts a God-sized dream in my heart? I will need to wrestle with that dream as it comes up against my self-image. Whether or not I get this makes no difference in reality. I am who God says I am. I am who God has created me to be, period. I can think and even believe the opposite, but my thinking or believing does not influence the truth. This is such a comfort for me. The reality of who I am is not actually impacted or changed by what I think. Truth is truth. There's often been a huge disconnect for me. It's more of a tension of apparent opposites, and it shows up like this. I am a sinner in need of God's saving. Sinner, guilty, and a child of God. Divine heir of the kingdom of heaven with Christ on account of Christ. In my tradition, there is so much emphasis on the former that the latter gets missed. I think I've missed that part. Please don't misunderstand me. I've always believed that I am an heir to all of God's kingdom enterprise. I've known it intellectually. However, I rarely embrace it, internalize it, adopt it into my psyche. I have not always lived my days or made decisions through that filter. It is not that we should adopt one or the other, sinner or child of God, or even one over the other. Both are true. The fullness of the gospel is found when we plant both of these in our self-concept. For God has said so, clearly and consistently. Thanks for forgiving me, Jesus. I sure am rotten, a blind beggar, lost without you. Yes, all true, because God has said so, yet incomplete. He also says this about me. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is the gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpieces. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. 1 John 3, verse 1. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all of his glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. 
may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. There's plenty more where those came from. A self-defeating view of myself does not come from God. An incomplete view of oneself is insufficient for dreamers. Disagreeing with God will not be helpful for us. We need his word concerning our identity as much as we need his word for the direction of our lives. I have learned that my personality leans towards emphasizing a certain aspect of God's truth. I'm a sinner, flawed, imperfect, needing forgiveness, needing work, etc. This lines up with me being a type 4 on the Enneagram. The Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system based on nine personality types. Those nine types are represented by numbers. For more information on the Enneagram, see the audiobook companion PDF. The danger with filtering God's truth through my personality type is that it gives me an incomplete view of myself, and therefore, it also gives me an incomplete view of God. This is why I need to constantly allow space for His Word. I must listen to His voice speak to me about me. Lesson 5. Following Jesus will impact every aspect of your life not just the spiritual part. There is no spiritual part of you. You are a whole person. And as a whole person, you are spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, intellectual, and relational. God has redeemed all of you in Jesus. There is no part of you that is untouched by his presence, his provision, his power. Jesus cares about every aspect of your life. He cares about your waking life. He cares about your sleep. He cares that you are productive. He desires you to be free from the emotions that control you. He can help you with the management of your finances. He wants you to live in healthy, honest, and supportive friendships. He can help you learn how to have tough but necessary conversations that yield harmony. He wants your business to thrive and be a blessing to others. He can do something about the long-held thought patterns that are keeping you stuck. He wants to see you using your gifts, time, and talents to benefit others. Where are you compartmentalizing your life? What part of the whole have you been keeping from his influence? Seriously, right now, is there some part of your life that you think might be too small, too messy, too embarrassing to open up and let Jesus influence? What is it? It might help you to speak it out loud. Better yet, write it down. Acknowledge your need for help. Ask for input. Bring it out into the light of truth. I have come that they might have life to the full, Jesus says in John 10, verse 10. Then you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. John 8, verse 32. Also the words of Jesus. He already knows all of it, every small detail. He created you. He knows you. He loves you. He is for you. Acknowledging it, making it public, bringing that hidden part out into the light helps you see it and connect it to the whole of your life. So what's the hesitation? Why do we resist giving our Creator, Savior, Sustainer the pleasure of leading us? Why do we resist our own pleasure? Why do we resist the dream He sparks? I have discovered three culprits. Number one, false belief. Our understanding of God is limited. It's influenced by our finite experience. The result is a limited view of ourselves. We are also guilty of overemphasizing one part of God's character while minimizing other parts. And so we miss accessing a gift that is available for us right now, not waiting for us someday. We know that Jesus came to save us from our sin and provide the gift of heaven after we die. But all too often we forget about what Jesus offers us in the life we're living now. Think about it. If he is only our ticket to heaven and not also Lord of our day-to-day lives, what do we miss? Is he there only to bail us out? On the flip side, if he is our model only and not our Savior, how will that affect us? Is he simply a guru? We must grapple with these questions, which may be painful as they cast the spotlight on our limitations. We must realign our understanding of he who sparks and rekindles dreams. The second culprit, fear. Fear of losing control. Fear of him asking us to do something that we really don't want to do or that we think we are incapable of doing. Fear that we will lose what we have. Fear of people's judgment. Fear of rejection. There are plenty of stories in the Bible that show us how terrifying his call can be, right? Noah, Abraham, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, Jonah, Paul, Peter, even Jesus. Shoot! Is there ever an instruction from the Lord to his chosen servants that doesn't come at some incredible cost or unbelievable discomfort? The third culprit, fascination. Fascination with the bells and whistles of the world, with the voices counseling us from the world, with the thought of being our own boss, with the promises of power, privilege, position. Lesson six. Personal clarity includes a general and specific calling. It is imperative that you follow your own dream. Trying to fit into someone else's mold robs the world of your unique contribution. The more clear you are about who you are, the less likely it is that you will get trapped by others' expectations. God did not clone you. He created you as a one of a kind. He is a master creator, and you are his masterpiece. He must have a very good reason for creating such diversity in the human race. Consider the beauty 
and magnificent collection of unique individuals he has scattered throughout the earth. Pull together every single human being throughout history and yet to come, and they would only begin to scratch the surface of the breadth and depth of his character. The countless expressions of humanity reflect his redemptive love, but as myriad as they are, they cannot reflect all of it. Dreams have a general and specific nature to them, which makes sense because they spring from the hearts of individuals who have general and specific callings. The general calling is to spread God's redemptive love. Specific calling? The individually unique way that the general calling gets lived out in one's life. General calling. A general calling without a specific calling leads to duty and obligation. It does so because it takes your unique contribution out of the equation. It leaves out creativity, perspective, and design. If you are not allowed to participate using your own uncommon perspective and extraordinary input, you would not be a part of your own story. You would only be providing manpower an extra set of hands. That sounds almost barbaric. It certainly would be drudgery. Part of what enriches any situation is the one-of-a-kind contribution of each participant. The flavor, beauty, richness, depth, and quality that an individual adds are all reflections of the diversity of God's gifts. A project only becomes whole when people play their particular part by putting to use their specialties. Without diversity of expression, we get monotony. Specific calling. A specific calling without a general calling leads to barrenness. Living for yourself without partnership is self-serving and powerless. Imagine a lifetime defined by a series of selfies. Where is the greater significance? Narcissism is so isolating. Certainly, it is no joint effort. Esprit de corps, synergy, working together. This is what we get to enjoy when we combine gifts. We can accomplish more together than we can alone. Capacity expands when we unite for a great cause. Some of my most exciting and fulfilling moments have come when I played on a team, on the basketball court, in the office, in Sunday service, in the boardroom, at the design table. Whether it has been playing a game, writing curriculum, leading worship, facilitating a group, drawing the best out of a room full of leaders, or making music in the band, joining together can be exhilarating. Our efforts will find their true value in their addition to the whole. We will never find a greater unifying mission than the one our Savior has shared with us. So why not play our part? Individualistic focus is impotent. Conceit, self-absorption, isolated egotism waste our gifts and stunt our growth. In my work with churches, I see the dynamics of copycatting at every turn. The work I do is to help churches and ministry organizations identify and then become who they were uniquely designed to be. 
There's a lack of understanding that each local organization is set apart from every other in the community. From this comes competition instead of cooperation, comparison instead of collaboration. Such a lack of understanding renders the mission impotent. It's the same for people. Personal clarity on the two fronts of general calling and specific calling will be a tremendous asset for you as you seek to live a fruitful and productive life. Your general calling answers the question, what? Determined by divine directives and divine gifting matched up with an evident and common human need, your general calling adds mission. Your specific calling answers the question, how? Determined by unique interests, talents, opportunities, and perspectives, your specific calling adds diversity. Where these intersect, there is great freedom, power, and fruitfulness. Lesson 7. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Many people believe that dreaming is only for others. For them, they think, there's little chance that a dream can be sparked. Any flicker of thought, any small dream spark would be quickly snuffed out by a cold draft of reality. So why even bother? That will never work. Who am I kidding? I don't have time for this. Dreaming is for people who have cash to burn. I have responsibilities. Responsibilities trump dreams. Your dream must live. For the dream to be given a chance to live, you need hope. With dreams, there's a lack of certainty. At first, the dream exists solely in the imagination. It needs space to develop to be considered. Don't kill it before it has a chance to enter the world. Most dreams do not die due to failure. They die of our fear of failure before they are ever launched. In order for our dreams to be sparked, we will need persistent hope. In the middle of the uncertainty, a light can break through. Right in the midst of the debilitating lies, renewal begins. Hope needs to keep doubt and fear in check so you can move forward. How do we do this so that our dreams are not hijacked? By making a simple declaration by making a deliberate choice and making it persistently. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Lamentations 3, verse 21. A different translation interprets the text this way. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. Dare to hope. Dare to dream. Dream big in spite of the realities that are getting in the way of the pursuit of that dream. This is perhaps the biggest lesson in dreaming big. Because the dream, your dream, sometimes seems so big, so daunting, it is critical to call to mind to remember. What? The familiar refrain follows. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. 
the refrain interrupts with hope. But only if verse 21 is executed. Call to mind. Remember this. The original language, Hebrew, literally means to turn back or to return to. This knowledge is already there. It has already been given and received. It is a truth that remains because it never left. Even in the darkness, pain, and toil described in verses 1 through 20, he who restores hope is right there. He can be accessed. But how? Before I answer that, let me ask another question. How is it that the painful moments and debilitating realities stay with you? How do you allow those dark interludes to linger? Is there anything to learn here? Can we apply the same choice, the same attention to what follows the colon in verse 21? If you can dwell in the darkest place, can you not also choose to dwell in the promises that produce hope and light? A friend recently said to me, I choose joy. I love that. But how? By remembering, calling to mind, returning back to, wait for it, God. By remembering to remember. Or you might say by recalling to recall. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Think on him. Consider him. Speak his promises. Linger on each phrase. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. What do you notice? What impresses you about this? How does this truth play out in your life? Where do you need the Lord's steadfast love today? His mercies never come to an end. What is mercy? Where do you need it today? Never come to an end under any circumstance. What circumstance today is afflicting you? What happens to the affliction when you apply the never? They are new every morning. What is new? What does this truth mean for you? Ponder it. Stay here a while. Don't rush past. Great is your faithfulness. What is faithfulness? How would you describe it? Put great is your faithfulness into your own words. Place it right in the middle of today. How does this change things? How does this impact your day, even if the circumstances don't change? And so it goes. The turning back, the calling to mind, the remembering, daily, sometimes even more frequently. Consider the promises of God. Linger there. Remember them. Memorize them. Focus on them. Then and only then will the life gift called hope begin to pierce the darkness and dare to shine through, redirecting you time and again to the source of your dream, the reason for it, and the certainty within it. Lesson 8. 
Neighbors make great friends. For ministry professionals, one of the greatest unexplored treasures is friendship. In fact, some of us were taught that we're not supposed to have friends within the church. The thought goes something like this. You can't provide the appropriate pastoral care if you've lost your objectivity in friendship. This frequently leaves professional church workers lonely and unfulfilled. A true friendship is rare. Any Google search for pastors and loneliness or church worker and loneliness will produce a minefield of explosive truth. Here's one insightful observation which starts, It's ironic that pastors who talk the most about the need for community experience it the least. Or this from a group called Ex-Pastor that has made it their mission to help those who are struggling. 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. And 40% report serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. As I write this first draft this morning, this post has 28,187 shares. Sobering. It's the cost of our calling, so we are told. At the seminary, I was taught that pastors should not have friends within the church. I was also taught that my role was primarily to take care of the church and those already within the walls of the sanctuary. This combination, no friends, plus stay in the church, equals loneliness. How could it not lead to loneliness? If our calling includes helping people on their spiritual journey with their life in Jesus, and if a life in Jesus includes vulnerable and true friendship, then what we've been taught simply does not add up. It's not working. And fundamentally, it hinders us as witnesses to Jesus at home, in our neighborhoods, and abroad. In the church, we are a group that simply does not know how to nurture friendships. Ouch. It is common for pastors, when they retire from their calling, to have a very difficult time in relationships. No wonder. They have rarely experienced friendship. And because a vast majority of pastors grew up in the church, they have never been discipled in a Christ-centered friendship. If this resonates with you, what can you do? May I make three suggestions? One, pray fervently for God to show you someone that can be your friend. Then follow his lead and risk vulnerability. If you want a friend, then be approachable or friendable. Enjoy that friendship. Two, explore friendship in your neighborhood. No converting, just be a friend. I think you might find it refreshing. Three, own your life. Don't simply complain that you don't have friends. Make an effort to be a friend. Make a decision to nurture friendship. No one will do this for you. The risk of disappointment is worth it in the end. Don't get to the end of your ministry, whether that be five years or 50 years, and discover that you have no friends. Life is more fulfilling with friendship. Number two, was a great discovery for me over the past decade. The gift of friendship in my neighborhood was one of the blessings during the six-month sabbatical I took from the local church that surprised me. 
Forcing yourself to get involved in new areas and with new people can open doors that you never anticipated opening. I'll never forget that first Wednesday in December, at the beginning of the sabbatical. Instead of going to church for our midweek Advent worship experience, I met with some of the men from my neighborhood at a local establishment, props to the Hop House in Verona, Wisconsin. I was so energized by our conversation. I had discovered that I had more in common with these brothers than I had anticipated. I came home and said to Amy, that was the best Advent worship I have ever experienced. This wasn't a theological statement, of course. It was a relational statement. Change is good. Making friends almost by definition brings new changes into your life. We have been blessed with some great friendships within the church. For this, I am extremely thankful. Lifelong friendships have endured. We are also discovering that neighbors make great friends too. Lesson 9. The Search for the Great Three. Love, Peace, Joy. Love, Peace, Joy. Just about everyone's dream includes them. There is so much searching for these today. The alarming increase of mass shootings, unethical and unprofessional leadership, busyness and overextension is underscoring our desperate need for love, peace, and joy. The great three are like sand slipping through our fingers. Pursuing the great three is like chasing after the wind. They are definable, yet they seem to be beyond our reach. So we live our lives without them. They may be up there in the mantle, adorning our living space as a decoration, but they are not employed in our daily lives. They have not become incorporated into our daily rhythms. And because we worship the idea, but fail to bring it into our reality, we continue to settle for less. They remain outside of our existence. We struggle to touch them, discern them, and experience them. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Colossians 1, verses 11 through 14. I encourage you to define what seems to be indefinable. Any attempt to do so will lead to a description. Love is like. Go ahead. Love, peace, joy. Describe them. Our descriptions may serve as dramatic revelations of our personal experience. These ideas can also become ideals. They escape our reality and dwell somewhere in the realm of the unapproachable, unable of being experienced by limited mortal creatures like you and me. And this is why we hear people speak about them as if they are just out of reach. I want some peace. I long for love. I wish I could shake this feeling and finally experience some joy. The great three are just beyond our grasp. This is true because we search for them away from their source. As long as we do this, we will continue to search in vain. Only God makes the invisible visible, intangible tangible, indiscernible brilliantly real.
God made and is making the great three available. What? Really? Seriously? For me? Yes. God is not veiled. He is love. He is joy. He is peace. The great three cannot be defined or experienced apart from him. He does not simply produce the great three. He is the great three. How is this possible? Jesus. God has chosen to place the great three in Christ. God has chosen to place all his fullness in Christ and deliver them to humans in the flesh. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. All the fullness of God in Jesus. All the fullness of the great three in Jesus. As I consider the truth of all that is written here, here's what I'm thinking I can do about it. Call them takeaways if you wish. Pursue Jesus. Praise God more. Ask for stuff less. Position yourself to observe. Lesson 10. Unsettled leaders need a spark. When I use the term leader, I'm referring to every follower. A leader is first and foremost a follower. We are leaders under the commission of Jesus. He is our leader. Anyone who follows Jesus is a leader. He has appointed us in our baptism to go and make disciples. And leaders are in desperate need of sparks, an encouraging word, an idea, a nudge, permission. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. As I work with Christian leaders, both those with official titles and those who are faithful in their following without official titles, I am reminded constantly that one of the greatest things that is needed is encouragement, which I am fortunate to be able to provide. Often encouragement comes in the form of simply giving permission to try. When I say try, I mean to attempt whatever God has prompted you to go and do without reservation, without any angst about the outcome. The original title of this book was Permission Granted. But there are already dozens of books by that title, a testament to all the fear in our ranks. Fear unchallenged over time leads one feeling unsettled. It's difficult to dream when we are anxious, agitated, or restless. A state of fearfulness keeps us stuck. And when we're stuck, we can't dream. If you are feeling unsettled right now, be encouraged. There is a way out. Sit down for a little bit. Consider some of the sources of new ideas that are right in front of you. I call them sparks. Sparks. Brainstorm. Stop evaluating as you dream. Turn down your critical faculties for a moment. The goal of brainstorming is to get as many ideas down on the page as you can. In this process, it is important to wait through silence and push through when you think you have exhausted your ideas. It is usually when we think we have run dry that a gold nugget reveals itself. Here are a few questions that may get those synapses firing again. What do you want to try that you've already talked yourself out of? 
If you had absolutely nothing to lose, what would you try? What have you wanted to attempt in the past, but have always resisted? If these questions haven't sparked what you were hoping for, press on with these questions. What is the craziest idea you could think of? What would a five-year-old do in this situation? Pick one of your favorite leaders and ask yourself what they would do. If I were blank in this situation, I would blank. In addition to brainstorming, another spark. Read, read, read. It really doesn't matter what. Read business books, novels, short works, long ones, fiction, inspirational, nonfiction. Just read. Reading will stimulate your thinking and inspire your dreaming. It will spark ideas and enliven your thoughts. Another spark. Write, write, write. Look for interesting combinations of ideas. Sometimes the best ideas are a combination of a couple of different approaches. With some mixing and tweaking, you may discover a third option that really works for you. For example, recently I was trying to get a couple of friends to read the Bible with me. We talked about doing this for months, but could not land on a date or time that worked for all of us. Our calendars were simply too full. We couldn't find time to meet. Everyone was getting frustrated and about to give up trying. Talking about this challenge with another supportive friend, the question was asked, What if you didn't have to be physically present in the same room as you read together? Insert slap to the forehead. Duh! It unlocked an approach I hadn't considered. We now read together using Google Hangouts after their kids are in bed. Instead of wrangling over dates and times, we are doing what we set out to do. Another spark. Apply scripture. As you read the Bible, stop and ask, Does what I am reading today have anything to say about my current unsettledness? What is God's word prompting me to do in response? How can I remember this scripture and reflect on it in the coming days? Warning. It is easy for a spark to get snuffed out. Please be careful with your spark. Don't share it too soon. Only with proper kindling will it turn into a fire. Lesson 11. The enemy of my soul does not want me to dream. Wait, what? There's an enemy of my soul? Yep, he's real. He's smart. He's tricky. And he desires nothing more than your complete destruction. He's intent on dragging you relentlessly into the pit. Jesus said that this enemy's objective is to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10, verse 10. Nice. His attack comes in two waves. In the first, he will do anything he can to keep you from dreaming. Jesus commissions you to dream. He prompts you to dream without fear. Satan, the king of fear, prohibits you from dreaming. The dreams of Jesus' followers make him shudder. So he will not shy away from the challenge to disrupt and destroy your dream before it starts. Be prepared for the second wave. If you have weathered the storm and dreamed a God-inspired dream, the enemy will marshal his forces to do anything he can 
to keep you from pursuing that dream. He will erect all kinds of barriers. He is a master strategist and will use all of his tricks. Here are five of his faves. Call them the dirty deeds of the devil. Discouragement. He induces you to focus on your difficulties rather than on God. Doubt. He compels you to lose faith in God's word and his goodness. Distraction. He diverts your attention from the great to the good. Good doesn't sound so bad, you might be thinking. And that's the point. How often are we settling when we could be excelling? Defeat. He presses you to fixate on your failure so you want to quit trying. And delay. He tempts you to put off doing something so that it never gets done. Here's the good news. The enemy is limited. He is not all-powerful. God is. Once the enemy's tactics are identified, their effect weakens and they can be overcome. He might be a master strategist, but God is the master strategist. The enemy has tricks. God has truth. The next time you're inspired by God to dream a better future and you start to have reservations, remember where the dream originated, by whose powers of creation and fulfillment it emerged, in whose foundry it was forged and minted. Renounce the enemy. Put him in his place. Rebuke him. Say it out loud. At your baptism, there was a declaration made. I renounce the devil, all his works, and all his ways. That was more than just some mythical statement uttered ritualistically at a religious ceremony. That is the vocabulary of one who follows Jesus. It is also part of what Martin Luther was talking about when he encouraged Jesus' followers to remember their baptism daily. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember Christ's position in your life. Remember also to renounce the enemy. Keep pushing him out of your business. Here are a few tricks of your own. Consider these counter moves to the enemy's tactics. Use them relentlessly. First trick. Speak truth. Out loud. On paper. Challenge your thoughts. Challenge your feelings. With truth. Your enemy is the father of lies. Your God is truth. Second trick. Execute your system. Establish your rhythm. See part two, lesson two. Practice, experiment, adjust, stick to it, stack habit on habit. And third trick, speed forward. Start immediately. Don't look back. Lesson 12. Passion is the secret ingredient. Everybody loves to participate in something where the people are excited about what they're doing. I'm not a tequila drinker, but meeting Juan in Indianapolis and hearing his story about being a part of generations of tequila makers in Mexico got my attention. Feeling his excitement as he described the process and all the different kinds of tequilas was a lot of fun. Talking at length to Tony at Nordstrom's, share his passion for fashion and service, helped me understand the appeal of a job I'd never paid much attention to. Recently, in a conversation with a leader at the church, 
we discovered that their service at church had become a bit of a drag. They were burdened by it. They had been doing it for a long time, and they needed a change of scenery. By considering the simple question, what would you like to do? They were set free to make a change. Life is too short to limit our focus to obligation. Being around people who are excited and fulfilled about what they do is contagious. You want to hear more. You're intrigued. You're drawn in. Movements that have passion as a real foundational characteristic cannot be stopped. What have you been wanting to try but haven't? Stop waiting and try it. In terms of following Jesus, what are you intrigued about? Where are you excited to jump in? What gets your heart beating more quickly? Let's look at this from another angle. Are there Jesus followers whom you observe having fun, enjoying what they're doing? Who are the Wands or Tonys who could share what they are doing and why they love it so much? Sit with them. Take them to lunch. Listen to their story. Maybe their passion will rub off on you. My wife Amy went to Ethiopia for seven consecutive years. The first year ignited six more. She couldn't miss it. She has tried to get me to join her every single year. Going to Ethiopia every February gave her a boost of energy and passion. The stories of the Ethiopian Christians and the Ethiopian Evangelical Church, Makana Jesus, are so inspiring. I love hearing about their passion, dedication, and joy. Recently, at a board meeting for an organization I'm a part of, we brought in a young man from Ethiopia. As he shared his passion for Jesus and multiplying missional leaders in his homeland so they could reach the entire African continent, I was moved to tears. He then shared how his church body in Ethiopia has a strategy to send missionaries to America. He promised that the West would be impacted by the Jesus followers in Africa. I have had similar experiences. When I was in India, I wanted to bring back home the Christians I met there and introduce them to the congregation I serve. If there was some way they could simply meet with our people, maybe some of that passion would go viral, as one would say in today's parlance. I have a friendship with two servants of Jesus who live in Nepal. They work tirelessly throughout the country, loving people and telling them about Jesus. They ride scooters for days through rugged terrain, delivering boxes of Bibles. I see pictures of them housing and feeding street children, giving warm blankets to cold villagers, marching with other Christians down the streets of Kathmandu as police look on. Such boldness, such faith. Where does that passion come from? For them, Jesus is real. He's not a philosophy. He is not a theological ideology. He is not systematic discourse. He is the living Savior who lived, died, and lives. He is the good news for our struggling planet. He is the answer for every need, for every situation. He lives. And here's the thing that I think separates those who are on fire from those who are lukewarm. There is an awe in their understanding that Jesus has invited them to be full participants in the Father's mission. It's like 
man, I can't believe I get to do this. Why would God let me play? This is so cool. How do we capture this passionate spirituality in America? How do we heat up our lukewarmness and accept this white-hot reality? American Christians are a lot like the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. Open up your Bible and follow along. Do you see the progression to white-hot passion? It starts when we recognize our deep need. This is hard for us, if not impossible. We say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And we don't realize that we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. As it says in Revelation 3, verse 17. And then we rejoice in the triumph that proceeds from such a need. Verse 21, Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my Father on his throne. And then we progress to invest in kingdom of Jesus pursuits. This is 18 and 19 of Revelation 3. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness, and ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Your heart follows your investment. Your time, talent, and treasure are often the means God uses to engage your heart and fire up white-hot faith. And then lastly, it leads to hang out with Jesus. Revelation 3.20 Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Dreams are forged here. They become an unquenchable, white-hot pursuit. Lesson 13. Find those who truly support your dream. Not everyone will support your dream. It is critical that you learn to identify those who will. Some things are hidden, and they will remain hidden. Not everything we see is the way things really are, and we don't see everything that is real. Only God can see the human heart and truly know its condition. There are people who are close to you who influence your decisions, your thoughts, your contemplations in a way that is not helpful, honest, or healthy. They do this intentionally and unintentionally. It doesn't matter which. Julia Cameron calls them crazy makers in her most excellent work, The Artist's Way. Affected by fear, jealousy, their own dependency, and others' opinions, they interfere with your pursuit. I'd like to clarify that we also don't want to turn away loved ones who are brave enough to tell us uncomfortable truths. Finding the difference between a crazy maker and a tough love friend whom we dismiss out of defensiveness is difficult, no doubt. Here are a few tips to help you distinguish one from the other. Pay attention to the moves of the person in question. 
step back every once in a while and observe their tactics. Consider this question. Does this person want you to attain your goals or not? Then ask yourself these more specific questions. Do they listen or give advice? Do they motivate or burden you with expectation? Do they celebrate with you or find loopholes in your plan? Do they empower you or distract you? Do they repeat questions you have already answered? Hint, you would probably be better served to surround yourself with people for whom you tick more of the former options to these questions than the latter. How do you feel after you're with them? Is there a certain unease? Regain your identity, reclaim your power, re-engage your unique calling as a child of God by listening to him. Spend more time with your master, creator, and dream maker than you do with them. Worry about his support, not theirs. It is so crucial that pleasing others is not among our primary motivations to lead. You may think you are pleasing others, that they are with you, when in reality they are not. The more energy you devote to pleasing others, the less likely it is that you will succeed. One, because you may become blind to their true feelings, and two, because people can be fickle and may take for granted those who take on a subservient role. So here's my advice. Follow God's directive. Listen to him. Keep your focus on what he has for you to do. Love people, but don't try to win their approval. In the end, it is simply not worth it. And more importantly, it doesn't work. Your job in life is to simply follow God. Live your life under his leadership. Learning to love people without basing your entire self-image on their opinion of you, something that is ultimately beyond your control, is one of the keys to fulfilling your call and pursuing your God-given dream. Recognizing and addressing the reality that we are often motivated by the approval of others will help us recover integrity, freedom, and power. Your greatest ally in this journey is God. He is with you. That is enough. People will come and go. There is an ebb and flow to their involvement in your life. Perhaps this all seems a bit austere, it is actually freeing because it unhooks us from people's approval and connects us with God who loves us and accepts us regardless of our performance. You have his approval before you take one step toward your dream. Live out this truth, and it puts those relationships with people in perspective and releases you to work with them, love them, and enjoy them with none of their expectations enslaving you. Lesson 14. Vulnerability is difficult, but essential. Recently, the idea that vulnerability is a weakness has been challenged. Vulnerability is not a handicap or a liability. It is actually one of the truest measures of courage and strength. Brene Brown, clinical researcher at Rice University, who has presented one of the most popular TED Talks, defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Let's go with that definition. When was the last time you resisted uncertainty? 
You may have felt like you needed a sure plan before you asked anyone to join you. You measured the effectiveness of your leadership by executing the plan. When things got difficult because of the intrusion of the unexpected, you question your leadership competency. When is the last time you resisted risk? You may have felt like the sure thing would be the only thing that you would dare to commit to. You have come to fear and scorn the unfamiliar. Too big a dream. It will never work anyway, you tell yourself. It's not worth the risk. When was the last time you covered up your weakness? You had to be the strong one. You had to prove that you could do it by yourself. You had to fight for everything you got. If you had asked for help, you would have become dependent. Are you afraid of uncertainty? Do you shy away from risk? Are you afraid to show weakness? Embrace the surprises. Life promises them. Embrace the experiment. Nothing moves forward without one. Embrace your need. A community is formed through mutual needs. Why is leading with vulnerability so important? Why is vulnerability actually critical for dreams to live? Number one, Jesus led with vulnerability. Jesus is the model of leadership to which we aspire. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, verse 13. If this kind of trust and vulnerability is good enough for the leader of leaders, then it's good enough for me. Number two, it allows us to depend on Jesus. When we rely on Jesus, our weakness actually becomes the place where his strength takes over. Vulnerability is also important because it keeps you from falling into pride. If the divine has sparked your dream, then he owns it. Because he owns it, he sustains it, and he defends it. Embracing our place in this equation frees us to receive our role in the dream as a gift. And it keeps us from the pressure of human striving. Number four, Vulnerability is the key to forming deep relational connections. There are no relationships without mutual needs. And finally, vulnerability allows us to explore a reality outside of our got-to-get-it-right-all-the-time-to-prove-my-worth adult headspace. It opens us up to see our limitations, but also to embrace our unique strengths. In other words, vulnerability empowers us to be unapologetically who we really are. Disclaimer. Let's be clear about what vulnerability really is. It entails risk, which can cost you greatly. These days, people throw around the term as if it were purely positive. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Showing vulnerability isn't easy. There will be those in your life who will use your vulnerability against you. They will see it as a weakness and use those moments as opportunity to gain an advantage. At least, then you can refine your dream supporter list. Be prepared to have the intimate fears that you shared confidentially brought out in public. Expect a few in your inner circle to exploit the trust you placed in them, to push you down as they boost themselves up. 
Some may resent you for showing vulnerability, and this resentment may compromise the friendship. Perhaps they were only riding the coattails of your success and jumped off at the first sign of what they perceived as failure. Don't be caught off guard or surprised by this phenomenon. If and when you experience these kinds of painful effects of vulnerability, remember that you are not alone in this experience. It's quite natural. These moments do not have to be dream killers. Dreams always tap into our vulnerability. They are not for the faint of heart, yet they take a vulnerable heart to get off the ground. Uncertainty, risk, and weakness, perceived and real, are basic ingredients of any dream. It's helpful to understand this reality. Childhood was full of these ingredients. Tapping into our inner child is a key to overcoming fear and dreaming big. That's probably why one of my favorite brainstorming coaching questions to help people unlock a dream or get unstuck from their current situation is, what would a five-year-old do in this situation? If you don't hold the same respect for the decision-making skills of a five-year-old, perhaps that's the point, to get outside of our adult headspace. What would a five-year-old do? Let yourself consider the question. Then experiment with the answer and act on it. Just see how it turns out. See how you feel acting on it. Yes, there are dangers with dreams. They will expose you. And that can bring disappointment, pain, and challenges. Yet the benefits and gains far outweigh the costs. Lesson 15. Waiting is hard. Some say it's the hardest part. Waiting. Ruminating about what could be when you're stuck in the what is can really suck the life out of you. Stop it then. Don't settle for the what is. You're going to have to confront what may initially seem a bit contradictory. One, you can only live in the present. And two, God has placed the future dream in your heart. Both are true. Embrace the tension. Because in that tension is the gold. The pursuit of the dream, a future achievement, is lived out in the present. As a friend summarized my book, fear is the problem, the dream the solution, and execution our path forward. Living in the present with hope and joy while you wait for something you truly long for is the hardest part. Can I make a broad sweeping generalization to solve all of your current challenges in this area? While you wait for your circumstances to change, change your circumstances. Now, doesn't that make everything all better? <laughs> Too abstract, you say? Okay, try this. Start with what is right in front of you. What can you control? Serenity prayer. What you are waiting for will only come if you are faithful in the moments in front of you right now. The future is realized by the steps you take in the present. Need something more specific and hands-on? Okay, okay, okay. Here are three concrete suggestions you might consider acting on right now to help you on your way. Number one, write out what you're waiting for. 
Utilizing your most creative, precise language, spell it out. Describe what you're waiting for and how you expect to feel when it arrives. Two, use the dream to set some goals you can execute right now. Don't allow any adverse circumstances in the present be an excuse. Actively pursue the dream right now. Drop the excuses and relentlessly pursue the dream. As you look at what you wrote describing what you're waiting for, think about one or two things you could do today as a first step. This may be a more critical time than you realize. How can you make better use of this time? What's your next move? And three, appreciate the present. Your life is more about the journey than about the destination. See the value in what is right in front of you. You may miss something really important if all you are focused on is a destination way out beyond the horizon. I'm not saying you should never consider life beyond the horizon. Occasionally looking at your future can help you keep moving in that direction. It is important to know where you are going. But that destination is only going to be realized if you take the next step right in front of you. Glance beyond the horizon. Gaze at what lies right in front of you. The present is chock full of experience, understanding, and discovery that will deepen the reality of your future. God is not just a God who is out there beyond the horizon waiting for you to find him. He is with you right now, even in the mundane, wish I were somewhere else. He is Emmanuel, just as surely as he is eternal life. In fact, life in Jesus is an eternal relationship that begins right now in the present. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Is it starting to sink in? As you begin to get some clarity in your dream, the pull to dismiss it will gather strength, unfortunately. It will seem more and more daunting when you focus on what you cannot control. You cannot control the future. You can only control your now. In fact, the future will more than likely diverge from the scenario you envisioned when your dream was first sparked. So hold on and enjoy the ride. Be a full participant right now by taking that first obvious step. In response to a question on my Facebook page, if you have dreamed a dream, how do you not become overwhelmed with all that needs to be done in order to achieve it? A friend responded, surrender. She went on to explain, God takes it in dips and turns we wouldn't have wanted or expected and then does something incredible with it. So, surrender the future to God. Surrender by taking the next step. Lesson 16. Don't believe everything you think. Thoughts come and go. You cannot control them. You can learn to filter them, however. You don't have to let them stay and take up residence in your mind. This is critical to our emotional well-being. Because not every thought that pops into your head is true. And as we think about dreams and the divine sparks that God places in your head and heart, 
It is critical to know that the enemy will also make you question their validity and your capacity to accomplish them. Lori Beth Jones in her book, Jesus Life Coach, Learn from the Best, writes, Once I had a dream where I was wading in a river full of snakes floating by me. I made it to the other side by not panicking and certainly by not picking up any of the snakes. Negative thoughts are like snakes. If you let them float past you, you'll be okay. But if you grab them and try to wrestle with them, you're in for some fang time. The father of lies is quite skillful at planning thoughts that are not true. He's also crafty at planning thoughts that are negative, true or not. You cannot control these thoughts from arising. You can control whether or not those planted lies and negative thoughts will germinate and take root, however. Lies and negative thoughts can enter our consciousness at any point. They can arise naturally. Choosing to let them stay increases the probability that they will take up residence as belief. Don't believe everything you think. All your thoughts are not helpful. They are not all true. Neither are all positive thoughts true. Truth is helpful. Lies are not. Of course, the $64,000 question is how to distinguish between negative thoughts that aren't true and the painful thoughts that are. Doubts kill dreams. They clutter your thinking, distract your attention, and make your pursuit a burden, not a joy. That said, there are tough-to-swallow truths that we cannot wish away. These are not negative thoughts that kill dreams. Rather, they are reality checks that help us narrow the field of play so that we may focus on what we were really meant to pursue. If you are to banish doubts and nurture positivity, it is crucial to understand and execute the following three key principles. The way to defend yourself against lies infecting your belief system is what I refer to as 3D thoughtfulness. It is a dream's best friend. 3D thoughtfulness. Number one, declutter. There are many ways to do this, like cleaning a closet. Open your mind. Rummage through it. Discard what you no longer find useful. Preserve what helps. Add what brings value. Make this a regular rhythm. Daily journaling. Guided meditation. I use Headspace. See Lesson 3. These two methods help you train the mind to let lies and unhelpful thoughts pass by and helpful and true thoughts stick. Number two, devote. God is the Father of truth. Jesus said in a prayer to his Father in John 17, verse 17, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. This is most certainly true. Don't treat the word of God as unimportant in your daily life. Don't dismiss. Don't exercise thoughtfulness without truth. You don't stand a chance without the word of God. If you are in such a place that you can't make yourself do it, find someone who can turn you in the right direction. Have a friend who you know devotes him or herself to the word of truth, drop you a daily text or email from their devoting time. Consider signing up for a daily text from the YouVersion app. Remember, D-E-A-R, drop everything and read, 
Read the Bible at a certain time in the middle of your day. Do something now to interrupt your normal thought pattern. Give it a try this week. See what happens. And lastly, delight. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Remember the prior lessons try this section? Reserve space in the morning and in the evening to think about something excellent from your day. Consider some event, some gift, something that caught your attention and then passed. Linger there as a discipline each day until your heart is moved to praise. Praising God leaves little room for dwelling on lies and unhelpful thoughts. If you still harbor any doubt that this works, can I simply ask you to humor me and give 3D thoughtfulness a try this week? Lesson 17. Raise a voice of hope. I am free to think a million different thoughts. I am no longer a slave to fear, but a child of God. I am not trapped in discouragement, but free to trust. And since God has given me this freedom, I have the power to choose hope, no matter what. As a result, I can lead others to hope. Dreaming is tricky business. By its very nature, as something yet unseen, a dream requires hope. Hope is God's business. As such, it can easily slip through our grasp. The hope that God intends for me, a finite being, can feel like too much to bear. I can tap into the infinite by affirming my connection with the one who sparks dreams. I can say, today I release my tendency to be distraught, fatigued, and inhibited. I can repeat, today I choose hope. And I can believe it. Dreaming a dream and realizing it is an involved process. These simple affirmations are not a one-time magic bullet. Raising a voice of hope is not simply a matter of the will. Affirmations are only the first step in the process of raising a voice of hope. Dreams need hope to thrive. I can begin to set my mind for the journey by repeating what I know to be true. God sparks dreams, and he does so in me. If I can learn to think differently... If I can learn to choose hope, I will be capable of raising a voice of hope. God provides me with hope-releasing moments. In the midst of my limitations and circumstances, He calls me to remember my identity and affirm His design. Repeating the truth about who I am and who God is over time, I learn to think differently. And as I learn to think differently, I can become a dreamer who raises a voice of hope. In the middle of so much judgment and negativity, of name-calling and character assassinations, of distance and brokenness, it is easy to give in to despair and join the hopeless voices that surround us. It's second nature to lose hope. God has a dream for his people, and he has birthed that dream in our hearts. It has been this way ever since he declared Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. In order to raise the voice of hope in their time, Israel would need constant reminders of their identity and his design. 
Call these reminders dream sparks. Consider one of these moments from one of Israel's greatest leaders, Joshua. Surrounded by godless Gentile nations, Israel had taken possession of the Promised Land. The ways of God were distinct from those of these nations that enveloped them. Joshua stood before his people and challenged Israel to choose. Kind of like trying to stem the tide of the ways of the world, Israel was supposed to be different. Joshua said in Joshua 24 verse 15, As for me and my house, we will serve, choose the Lord. We like to quote this passage. These words are in many homes, on plaques, given in cards. It's a bold statement. We love the sound of it. It sounds hopeful. So we quote it. But this oath is more than simply inspiring words. It is a critical moment of action. It is a dream spark moment for Israel. At Shechem, Joshua calls the children of Israel to make a choice. It might seem like an easy choice to make looking back. Realizing the context of the story, though, will help you discover the common complexities that emerge for anyone who stands alone against the tide. Israel alone is supposed to represent God and his faithfulness to the godless nations that surround them. This is another critical moment in the history of the Israelites as witnesses. It is a covenant moment. In a sense, as he leaves his people, Joshua is reminding them not to turn their backs on their joyful obligation to follow the Lord and show him to their neighbors. For this purpose, they have been redeemed. God doesn't leave them alone, however. He uses Joshua and this recommitment ceremony to help Israel remember God's benevolent generosity in spite of its inability to carry out its part of the divine agreement, which was to drive out the enemy nations from the land of promise. I guess the choice to obey God completely wasn't so simple after all. God raises a voice of hope for Israel even when they can't. And he does it with a rhythm we can replicate. We can repeat these same steps in those inevitable, dream-challenging, and hope-fleeting moments that we will face. By incorporating the steps in Joshua chapter 24 into the pursuit of our dreams, we choose to raise a voice of hope when the odds are stacked against us. God is in these steps. Step number one, Joshua 24, verse one, stop. Joshua summons Israel. They stopped and presented themselves to the Lord. Personal application, silence. Take a break. Conduct a divine interruption of the ordinary patterns of your living. Settle in for a sacred moment of renewal. Ask, what do you need to stop doing or saying in order to be truly present for this moment? Step two in Joshua 24, verses 2 through 13. Recall, Joshua quotes God 
as he retells his redemptive story. Personal application. Remember and recount your personal experience with God's faithfulness. Write down real place, real time moments. Remembering is critical because without it, we cannot feel and express proper gratitude. Furthermore, out of memory, hope grows. Ask, which of God's promises do you need to remember to keep hope flourishing? Step three, verses 14 through 15. Declare. Joshua challenges Israel to declare its allegiance to God. Spoken out loud, this covenant moment propels Israel forward. Joshua goes first and commands Israel to choose. Personal application. Consider who or what will get your allegiance and choose. Ask, what affirmation do you need to speak aloud or make public? Step four, discard. Verses 22 and 23. Joshua commands Israel to throw away all other allegiances by destroying their idols. Personal application. Put away the comfortable but complacent patterns that you have given yourself over to. These can be thoughts, patterns, distractions, anything that has kept you from dreaming. And ask, how will you remove these hope-stealing thoughts and reminders that are keeping you down? Step number five, verses 25 through 27. Make it visible. Joshua recorded the events of this covenant renewal in the book of God's instruction, and he places a rock there. He leaves them with a visible record and sign so they will never forget. Personal application. Write down your renewed intention. Inscribe it on your heart by making it visible. Ask, what tangible reminder of this moment can you place in your line of sight that will take you back to this renewal moment? A leader who repeatedly goes back to God's promises and faithfulness to deliver on those promises chooses hope this day and becomes a confident, hope-filled leader, even in the most uncertain times. Joshua had reason to hope. Unlike his neighbors, he and his household had chosen to align themselves with the Lord and his purpose because he had always been faithful. He had chosen allegiance to God because God had chosen him. There is a parallel here that I want to make sure we don't miss. Joshua says to the Israelites, don't turn your back on your obligation to the Lord to be his witnesses. After all, didn't God explicitly say, you are my witnesses? I have given you the capacity to show me to the world. In like manner, I am saying to you, don't turn your back on your capacity to dream. God has placed his dream in your heart. You not only have the capacity to dream, you have a joyful obligation to dream. Discovering a dream and seeing it through to realization is part of your covenant with God. God wants us to be dreamers, to tap into the freedom that he gives, to experience the fullness of him, to conceive of and give birth to a dream as a testament to him. There will be many times in your leadership 
that you'll be given a choice to raise a voice of hope or continue to grind under the weight of fear. You have reason to hope too. God is your leader. Allow me to get personal for a moment. Raising a voice of hope is not natural for me. Sure, I dream, but I also doubt. I am quick to chastise myself. I am reminded daily of circumstantial and personal limitations. I can give you many more reasons why I can't than why I will. These simple steps from Joshua's life have helped me choose hope. You can find reminders of renewal moments strewn all over my home and office space. On my closet doors in my home office, you can read post-it notes of affirmation. You'll discover painted rocks on my desk and three-by-five cards taped to my mirror. You'll see phrases that have become mantras of hope written on my dry erase boards. These visible stepping stones lift my hope again and again. In those covenant moments, we hear again and again of God's faithfulness in our history, and we get to choose again. At God's initiative, we get to change our mind, put aside our hope-killing ways, declare our allegiance, and raise a voice of hope. Lesson 18. I will not overcome first-world consumeristic Christianity. My distaste for consumerism in American Christianity almost drove me to quit. God provided a sabbatical. The church where I serve as lead pastor granted me a six-month sabbatical from the local parish, November 2016 through May 2017. It was a -a once-in-a-lifetime gift. I am forever grateful. It is understandable that those who are created to be part of our kingdom dreams strike out to pursue the American dream as well. Yet this is problematic. They don't always play well together. These two dreams, though, they live side by side. At some point during the sabbatical, I gave up the fight. God released me from the pressure. Better said, he finally helped me see that it is not my responsibility to turn people from American consumerism to kingdom pursuits. Rather, it is my privilege to love them as they lived in real tension between the two. All my efforts in my ministry to convince others of kingdom ways didn't seem to work. As a matter of fact, all my personal efforts to resolve this tension in my own life weren't working. God graciously revealed to me my own participation in the problem. I am a living example of the challenge of American consumerism for the follower of Jesus. I guess God got tired of me whining and complaining because he led me to greater understanding and empathy. He began to challenge me to work within the context of American consumerism. This is where I live, and these are the people with whom I live. I do not live in a different reality. Jesus has called me to pursue his dream in this context. Missionaries work within their context, not above it. America is my mission field. Consumerism is one of the realities of America, part of the context. To effectively engage the people in the context of where we live, we must choose to live in love and without judgment. 
The scripture describes this as being in the world, but not of the world. I would call these mission realities. We do not control the conversation. We do not set the agenda. We do not call the shots. We live alongside. We build trust. We listen in order to understand. Applying these missionary realities is transformational. Leveraging those lessons within the reality of American consumerism challenges every posture I am accustomed to. As a missionary in this American landscape, I try to listen instead of convince, love instead of judge, and learn instead of debate. Cursing the darkness is not very effective. Shining the light is. Of course, I need to distinguish between the light and the darkness. God will help me with discernment. I guess the point I'm trying to get across here is that attempting to convince people to shed their consumeristic tendencies is tiresome. Celebrating the glorious and gracious nature of God is inviting. This American mission field reality is not only a reality outside the walls of the church, it is also a prevalent within those walls. Constantly pointing out the emptiness of consumerism will not rid the church of it. That approach will not convince Christians to recalculate. The desire for more, after all, is built into our DNA by God. God put a deep desire into the heart of every person for more of Him. It's the divine thumbprint marking mortal creatures as His. The problem with consumerism is that it is a replacement for God, and any replacement will ultimately disappoint. You cannot serve both God and mammon. But constantly pointing this out to a group of people who are largely satisfied with what consumerism has delivered is an uphill battle. If our dream as Christian leaders is to live out an inclusive kingdom dream, one that embraces God's children who are steeped in this culture, then perhaps adjusting our approach to better communicate the dream is a worthy pursuit. Here are a few ideas to challenge our preconceptions. Number one, compare and contrast without judgment. Just the facts, ma'am. Instead of lashing out against the consumeristic reality, leverage it. Bright and shiny, propped up with creative and powerful marketing versus real and authentic. Sustainable and true weathers the storm, nurtures the soul, warms stone-cold hearts. In other words, uncover the end result of consumerism. It is a common experience for all of us. All of the substitutes for God wear out. They need to be replaced. God substitutes fray and disintegrate. God endures. And if our greatest testimony to the world is our transformed lives as followers of Jesus, then we must share our real-life redemption stories and our accounts of how our lives have been changed. There is a challenge with this. If we as a church do not reflect divine light in our personal narratives— then we will be forced to use the advertising world's bright and shiny methods to get the word out. And by such methods, we would come across as inauthentic, 
transactional instead of transformational. So, compare and contrast the kingdom ways of Jesus with the ways of American consumerism. Again, just the facts, baby. Don't try so hard to convince. Show, don't tell. Let the real-life stories stand. Allow them space to do their work. Number two, work tirelessly to show the beauty of God. I will never be able to beat the bright and shiny. But I can work a little harder at shining the light on the true original. Recently, I read a Facebook post that pointed out the lack of creativity in movie productions these days. Every movie seems to be a retread of past scripts. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 comes to mind. There is nothing new under the sun. Ah, I think we're on to something. God's character is astounding. Utilize the divine DNA given to you to creatively and winsomely direct people's gaze to his beauty. He is the one and only, the original. Your kingdom dream centers on him, not on anything or anyone else. Rely on God for creativity. After all, he is the creator. Any created thing has him as its source. He put the ability to create in us. Creativity is a divine DNA marker. Use that to give him glory. Don't settle for the created thing. See Romans 1, verses 23 and 25. And finally, become a master story connector. God is the master storyteller. Don't tell his story without connecting it to ours. And don't tell our stories without connecting them to his. Our stories are forever intertwined. God's redemptive story shows in blinding reality the ultimate destiny of choosing God's dream over man's. Time and again throughout human history, God shows us what the results of consumerism are. Our human dreams die. They come to an end. He also shows us the results of his enduring love. His dream never dies. It overcomes our fallenness. Connect these biblical stories to ours. Connect the past with the present as you lead people into the future. Use stories, both old and new, as evidence for the need to dream God's dream. And don't tell any story without making the connection to that dream. Lesson 19, the limitations of scarcity mentality. Jesus said to his children, the disciples, you will do greater things than me. John 14, verse 12. Your children will surpass you. I'm referring to both your biological children and anyone you invest in and feel a sense of responsibility for. If you're doing it right, there is an exponential aspect to your investment. Consider how helping others achieve success, however you, they decide to define it, results in significant benefits in a number of directions. 1. 
the receiver reaches a far greater potential than they would have on his or her own. Two, the world is bettered and is given a life-giving model to emulate. Three, the giver is remembered fondly and is often publicly and privately thanked for their contribution. Four, the original recipient is more likely to pay it forward, endowing others as he or she has been endowed. And finally, the cycle begins again. This is why it is more critical to help others grow than it is to achieve success ourselves. The main culprit that keeps us from helping others? Scarcity mentality. The belief that what we have is not enough, and that if we don't preserve and protect it, it will be gone forever. Worst case scenario dominates our thinking. This mindset leads us to possessiveness and fear, the foundations of greed. We become the opposite of what we aspire to be, more generous. Unfortunately, this is a completely natural phenomenon. It happens to all of us in one way or another. We're not alone and we're not helpless either. We receive help from on high. The king of our dreams wants us to experience more. He wants us to experience the fullness of his life so the world can know his life. And he gives us that fullness. Though he is not limited by a scarcity mentality, He chooses to work within our natural constraints. Isn't that amazing? The gifts of God multiply and they don't expire. They don't run out. God is never short on supply. Isn't this one of the main points of the miracle of the loaves and the fish in Mark 6, verses 30 through 34? You feed them, Jesus said. Give them what you have. There was a time in my preaching ministry when I was using books by expert Christian authors to shape our sermon series. I was afraid that what God was leading me to say was not profound enough. One of the members of my congregation came to me and lovingly challenged me to trust in what God was giving me to share. You are our pastor. God has given you what he wants to share with us. I don't need to hear what someone else says. Once the wounded pride dissipated, I was able to consider what she said. Today, I am not as quick to go hunting for the expert's quote as I was before that encouraging confrontation. I am much more willing to trust the thought or insight that God has given to me. Recently, in our preacher's learning community at our church, we were challenging each other to Commit to the bit. It's a term used by actors and comedians when they get a crazy idea. Go for it. Trust your instincts. Go all in and don't hesitate. I am thankful for that moment when I was challenged to find and share my voice. After all, God gave it to me for a reason, right? Now, don't get me wrong. It is good to share insights, even a whole series of thoughts from published authors. That said, I encourage you to find your own voice. With Jesus, what you have been given is always enough. When we talk about dreams, it is natural for us to think about our own dream as a personal opportunity to shine, even outshine others. Yet in this lesson, 
I really want us to tap into the desire to do the opposite, to be outshined. I think most parents understand this. Can you imagine how much it would empower our communities if we would extend the kind of trust and confidence in God's provision to others that parents extend to their children? Our aim then, our goal, is to invest in others so they surpass us. This gives honor to God's way. This gives testimony to the kingdom of Jesus. Lesson 20. Embracing limitations drives creativity. Standing in Walgreens trying to pick a deodorant, I get overwhelmed. I mean, really, how could there be so many deodorants? All the choices make me freeze with indecision. Cereal, pasta, wine, bottled water. More options are not always better. Hearing that God has called upon us to reach out to the world can have the same inhibitive effect. When we understand that our vocation is to spread his word, we often become paralyzed with the same indecision. Where to begin? How to be most effective? All the possibilities engender thoughts, but also second thoughts, and those second thoughts bog us down. That's why at the church we use phrases like embrace limitations and accept responsibility for your walkable community. In art school, while pursuing his dream, Phil Hansen developed an uncontrollable shake in his hand. The shake came about after years of drawing using tiny little dots called pointillism. He describes this time in his life as doomsday. His dream was crushed. For a while, he tried to control the shake by gripping his pencil tighter and tighter. The pain in his hand and joints increased, and eventually, he quit art school and quit art. Months later, unable to let art go, Hansen went to see a neurologist who told him two things. You have permanent nerve damage. And why don't you embrace the shake? So he did. Drawing on some of the same concepts in pointillism, for instance, using fragments to create a unified picture, he began just letting his hand go. He stopped trying to control the shake. He felt free. He discovered that the squiggly lines that he now produced could become components of beautiful portraits. They weren't the dots he had grown accustomed to using, but they could still create new masterpieces. From there, he began experimenting with larger mediums and even used his feet to create images. After having gone to a single approach to art, I ended up having an approach to creativity that completely changed my artistic horizon, he said in his TED Talk. He ultimately discovered that there was an endless future of possibilities for his art. Constraints often help us tighten our focus. And when focus tightens, horizons expand. The Apostle Paul never tells us what infirmity he was dealing with, yet he wanted the Lord to take it away. 
In a sense, the Lord tells Paul the same thing the neurologist told Phil Hansen. Three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time, he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now, I am glad to boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10. Embracing the limitation can actually drive creativity, says Hansen. It is only in embracing limitations and letting go of desired outcomes that you can tap into creativity at deep levels. How many times have you not produced content because you were afraid it wouldn't be good enough? How many times have you not realized the thought because you already determined it wasn't going to be well-received by others? We define ourselves by how we think the portrait is going to turn out. It is a painful, self-defeating way to live. What we have is not enough, we think. I see this all the time. It's subtle. In some of our supportive discipleship environments where we attempt to stimulate creativity and experimentation and living our lives with gospel intentionality, I hear phrases like these all the time. I don't know if this counts or not, but I was thinking, not sure if this would ever work out or not, so I've been hesitant to try it. I've been thinking for a while that I should, but I just don't think it is enough. But if I do start, I'm not sure I'll ever be able to back it up. I don't know enough. Help me think this through. The boy's lunch in the feeding of the 5,000. Moses stumbling and struggling with his speech impediment in Pharaoh's Egypt. Mud and spit in the hands of the Savior. Tax collectors, fishermen, prostitutes. Peter, who couldn't stand up to the pressure from a little girl. David, the shepherd boy, and later the liar, cheater, abuser of power, adulterer, and murderer. Every single one of these stories had a divine purpose and a limited or flawed conduit. God chose to work through materials at hand. With God's help, we will find a way with the resources at our disposal. We shouldn't expect that some sort of magical windfall is the only means of achieving our goals. We probably possess the means from the get-go. The real challenge is to accept that which is already within us. To accept that we, even at our most limited, are still vessels for His will. God is always calling those who are limited. He embraces limitations. He uses the ordinary. Teddy Roosevelt is credited with saying, Do what you can with what you have where you are. Why does embracing your shake drive creativity? Well, embracing your shake 
allows the Creator to shine by not relying on a bunch of man-made materials. Don't take a purse or anything with you, as it says in Mark 6, verse 8. You put the art in the hand of the Creator, and He allows you to create with Him. God is an ex nihilo God. Creating something from our limitations is perhaps the closest we can ever get to creating like God creates. If God can make the entire universe out of nothing, the void, imagine what he can do with your something, even though you may regard it as severely limited, paltry, or insufficient. Embracing the shake also allows you to start with what you have instead of delaying in hope of something better. We all have limitations, weaknesses. If we determine that those weaknesses will keep us from creating, we will not create anything. Only in embracing those limitations can we get started. Embracing the shake permits the real you to emerge. As unique as your limitations are, so too is your unique output. No add-ons, no substitutes, compensations, or enhancements. Just you and what you got. So what is your limitation? Right now, what is keeping you from dreaming big and realizing? Lack of know-how? Not enough money? No experience? Not enough time? What would happen if you simply acknowledge the reality of your limitation, but instead of letting it block you, you allowed it to have some bearing on your way forward? Perhaps it would necessitate a slight detour, or perhaps it would inspire you to summon stronger resolve and plow straight ahead. This book had its genesis by confining my writing to 5 to 6 a.m. every morning. The time limitations sparked creativity. Lesson 21, The Big Two, Unwavering Belief and Vigorous Execution. Nothing is accomplished in life without two essentials, conviction and execution. On the one hand, if you lack mental certitude that what you are doing is yours to do, you will lack the resolve to weather the inevitable storms. Stake a claim and accept the responsibility for your dream. On the other hand, if you lack the plan to succeed, you will be distracted from that thing you are to be doing. You must commit to the strategies, plans, and meaningful action. Unwavering belief and vigorous execution of a plan are both essential to achieve anything worthwhile. The former has to do with mindset the latter, lifestyle. Without unwavering belief, you will become discouraged. Without the vigorous execution, you will become distracted. Discouragement and distraction are production killers. I have found that the proper mindset and appropriate life-giving habits must be integrated into my daily life rhythms if I want to succeed. If I ever hope to stay the course, I must know in my heart that the goal in front of me is worth pursuing. And I will need to execute the right plan, which may entail fostering the right habits and compiling the right action items day by day to attain my goal. Mindset and lifestyle 
are huge. Just because your dream gets God's approval and is clearly worth the effort, that doesn't mean that it will go unchallenged. Not once or every once in a while, but relentlessly, consistently, persistently challenged. Obstacles, distractions, detours are all part of our daily pursuit of worthwhile goals. The dream will draw challenges on both of these critical aspects, mindset and lifestyle. Write down your goal in this sentence. I will blank no matter what. There is no other option. This is the place to start. Fervent belief in your cause is the foundational gift that you will build upon. So put this cause, this dream to the test. How will the world be different if you do not pursue this dream? If not this dream, then what? If not you, then who? What will be missing from the world if you do not pursue this dream? How did you come about this dream? How was it given to you? Why you? What will happen to you if you do not pursue it? A dream without a plan is powerless. A plan without the will to be realized is empty. Two things keep leaders unsettled. Dreaming without a plan. Planning without a dream. Dreams are crucial, but we only glance at them. We only look up occasionally to see that we're on track. Plans are vital. We abide by them. We order our days by them. We schedule them, focus, and finish them. If they aren't proving to be effective, we adjust them or change them. Our goals can only be reached through a vehicle of a plan in which we must fervently believe and upon which we must vigorously act. There is no other route to success. Dreams need to work hand-in-hand with plans if they are to be measurable so that you can determine if you're making progress. But only if they hold their proper place. The dream is not the plan. The plan is not the dream. Both have their place. The dream is a future reality that remains out there somewhere in the distance that inspires our pursuit. The plan is the step-by-step process in the present tense that keeps us on track and gives us the chance to realize the dream. If we don't keep these straight and distinct, we will fall victim to confusion. Thinking the plan is the dream results in rigidity, busyness, drudgery. Thinking the dream is the plan results in victimization, self-pity, daydreaming, wishful thinking. If I don't undergird the dream with a support structure of quantifiable steps, the dream will fade, even become loathsome. Break the dream down. What will it take in the first year to begin the journey toward the dream? I'm here. I want to go there. What are my first steps? The journey to Breckenridge, Colorado from Madison, Wisconsin begins in Madison, takes me down Highway 151-18, first past Mount Horeb, Barneveld, Dodgeville, Platteville, and then through the rolling hills leading to Dubuque, Iowa. 
figure out your route. What are the things that must happen in year one if you hope to arrive at your destination in year five? Establish that one-year objective. Then, break down that one-year objective into smaller steps. I find it helpful to look at 90-day or quarterly objectives. Begin with the first 90 days or quarter. Visualize this as getting to Dubuque on your way to Breckenridge. This provides direction toward the dream while not overwhelming you with the entirety of the trip. Living and planning one year out is too long a time frame. The rate and pace of change is too fast. So follow these steps. Number one, articulate a major year one objective. What is the one thing I must accomplish in year one to have a chance at attaining my ultimate dream? Number two, determine your next 90-day, 12-week, quarterly objectives. What is the one thing I must accomplish in this 90-day season to have a chance at hitting my one-year objective? And then number three, figure out what measurable tactics, habits, goals, action initiatives you will need to implement to achieve the 90-day objective. What are the daily and weekly action steps, habits, I need to build into my calendar? And then finally, number four, work those smaller initiatives into your daily schedule. Lesson 22. Unsettled leaders need dream catchers. I am not a proponent of the theology behind the dream catcher. With a little tweak, however, it serves as a powerful metaphor for one of the most basic and underperformed leadership skills. If you have trouble thinking about this because of the theology, then think about a spider web instead. The twofold idea is that we catch what sparks and filter out what snuffs. Many unsettled leaders have lost the ability to dream, or they never developed the ability to dream in the first place. Or they have a dream, but are unable to realize it because they have become inhibited by fear. Dreaming is an essential part of effective leadership. The inability to dream is the root cause of feeling unsettled. God inspires dreams. He is always doing something new. He invites us to co-create with Him. Dreaming inspires hope. It gives us a direction and activates faith. It inspires trust in God's provision. It puts us in the position of total dependence on God. Call it dreaming, call it vision, whatever you call it, unsettled leaders struggle to do it. Why? They're told not to. They think they don't have time for it. Or they think it's selfish. I just received an email from a coaching client. He's been on this journey with me for some time now. In that process, he has rekindled the desire to take steps toward achieving a personal dream. In his heartfelt email, he closed with this line, I'm mainly thinking out loud, trying to justify personal goals in midst of seemingly consuming work goals and schedule. We should never feel the need to justify personal goals and dreams. It is not selfish to follow Jesus and have that following impact our personal lives. 
God has endowed us with a desire to dream personal dreams that impact our lives for good. He has made it a part of our DNA. Take a moment right now and open the Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Start with verse 7 and read through verse 10. Now, what would this dream have meant to the original recipients? What would this description of a future land have meant for them in their historical context? What difference would that dream have meant for their living and hoping in the present moment? The language. This is just one example of where God vividly describes a future. In life-giving detail, he lays it out. He spares no creativity because he is the God of creation. So why would God not want you, who bear his image, to exercise your own creativity through dreaming? But you're a responsible person who believes responsibility trumps risk. And there are duties to fulfill, obligations to carry out. Dreams are risky business, a distraction from paying the bills. If you're not careful, you will lose what you have been so responsible in gaining. A voice pops up. You'll never realize the dream anyway, so why even try? But this is the wolf in sheep's clothing. Fear disguised as prudence. Two things are necessary to break the bad habits that have emerged because of these fears. Dreamcatcher. Let the good stuff stick. Catch the dream. Grab onto it. Learning how to dream again, free from fear. And let the life-stealing stuff flow on by. Through the in-between space, let it pass. Lesson 23. Choose your niche. Master that. Dictionary.com defines niche as a place or position suitable or appropriate for a person or thing, or a distinct segment of the market. By nature, we are copycats. We see someone else succeed and our focus shifts. We no longer pay attention to what we are doing. We obsess over what that successful person is doing. It's impossible to discover our own unique dream when we are focusing attention on copying someone else's. What makes this challenge even more difficult to overcome is that we live in a society that compels us to conform. You ought to be that kind of business owner, this kind of dad, this kind of writer, that kind of pastor. And so, if we cannot choose our own craft, focus on our own unique contribution, or list the things we are placed on this earth to do with proper clarity, we remain vulnerable to the expectations of others. God created you a masterpiece. You are one of a kind. Ephesians 2 verse 10. You are designed intentionally and for a great purpose. You have been set apart to contribute something no one else can. Attempting to compete with someone else at their game is not wise. Begin the search for your dream by embracing your niche. God placed you there for a reason. The challenge here is to choose your craft, focus on the thing, or portfolio of things that only you can do and do it well, without apology or complaint. 
There will be a void in the world if you don't. There are already a million people doing what others want you to do. It is their fear that drives them to keep you stuck playing their game. Think about this for a moment. Here, I'll repeat it. It is their fear that drives them to keep you stuck playing their game. You are already well aware of how your own fear keeps you from dreaming. Don't add others' fear to the mix. There are people around you who have never discovered their own niche. They will want you to fit their mold because it will make them feel better about themselves. There are people who are afraid to dream. They settle instead for compliance. They will want you to comply. Theirs is the business of control and credit. Resist this business. Resist them. Author Jeff Goins goes on to write, Recently, a friend shared with me a time when he was running a marathon and watching all these people pass him. He was frustrated because he thought he was in good shape, but here he was, struggling to keep up with the pack. Just as my friend was on the verge of calling it quits, someone came alongside him and said, run your own race. Finding your niche will require a reawakening. I would liken this process to what Julia Cameron describes as your recovering artist. Recovering artists have been blocked and are now striving to break free. Don't expect blocked friends to applaud your recovery. That's like expecting your best friends from the bar to celebrate your sobriety. To choose your niche more than likely, you will need to break free from your dependence on your friend's approval. And becoming a recovering artist, dreamer, will mean that you may disturb the relational status quo that you once experienced with those around you. Blocked friends may find your recovery disturbing. Your getting unblocked raises the unsettling possibility that they too could become unblocked and move into authentic creative risks rather than bench-sitting cynicism. Be alert to subtle sabotage from friends. You cannot afford well-meaning doubts right now. Their doubt will reactivate your own. Believe that you were given a gift to share with the world, a unique and powerful life-transforming gift from your Creator for the benefit of others. Your first task is to discover what that is. And I would suggest discovering your niche is a great place to start. Finding your niche in and of itself can become a fear-producing pursuit. Just the idea that you have a niche can be alarming. As we consider dreams and the execution of those dreams in this book, we want to resist the strong pull for perfection. We are not talking about finding the perfect niche that can be daunting. Instead of finding the niche, let's start with discovering a niche. Lesson 24. The church must get back to mission. For the church to have an impact in the world today, it must get back to its mission. And in order to get back to that mission, the church must learn to dream again. Jesus established his church to be the vehicle of redemption and restoration, 
drawing people back to their creator. It is the power of that dream for the world that ignites the daily work of the mission. Without that spark, the church settles for duty and obligation. Duty and obligation live in the realm of the law for most people. The call to mission is exhilarating. The mission of the church is the adventure of adventures. It belongs to the realm of dreams. And I'm not talking about pipe dreams. I'm talking about clear and compelling direction. The second part of this book discusses the execution of the dream. Certainly there is a need for focused and relentless execution of any mission for it to succeed, and yet the mission derives its energy from the dream. Mission is the mission. The church's mission has always been to make Jesus followers who make Jesus followers. This is the fruit that Jesus designed the church to produce. Always has been the mission, always will be the mission. A number of consecutive generations worth of mission creep will not change that. The mission is not to grow a church. It is not to plant a church. It is not to get people to come to church. These are only input effects of connecting others to Jesus. Our mission is simply to help people follow Jesus. This is our privilege. Unfortunately, too often, we have our heads down as we do our work and lose sight of this joyful opportunity. In Matthew 12, Jesus is walking with his disciples on the Sabbath. Along the way, they get in trouble with the Pharisees for picking heads of grain. No one works on the Sabbath. It's the law. In this exchange with these religious leaders of the day, Jesus has his own mission recalibration moment with them. He says simply, there is something greater than the temple, and you're looking at him. Can you imagine the energy it must have taken to maintain the temple? The money to raise, the people to recruit, the programs and rituals to execute, the building needs to oversee? And in the process, you miss me, the Messiah. As a modern-day Christian leader, I think I can imagine the energy it must have taken. I've lived it. I have had years of experience raising money, recruiting people, designing and implementing programs, protecting and executing rituals, and overseeing the maintenance of buildings. All of this demands attention. And sometimes for a Christian leader, it can become the end instead of the means. The single mission of leaders in the Church of Jesus is to help people follow Jesus and assist them in their helping others do the same. And yet many times we reveal our desperate need to get back to the mission by what we measure as success, A, B, C, attendance, buildings, cash. Sure, these measurements can give us some indication of the provisions we have been given to accomplish the mission, and give us some measure of effectiveness, yet we can have remarkable results in these areas and still not be accomplishing the mission of the church. The mission is sparked by a dream. The dream of a world restored to its original design fuels the daily mission of the church. Our daily activity 
mission of helping others follow Jesus will be the only activity that drives us to the dream of a new creation, a restored people, a life-giving community. I long for this mission to be lived out with passion by every single follower of Jesus. That's a dream that propels me forward. It is pretty ironic that this dream has not been widely accepted within the church. As such, it has not always been easy to hold fast to this dream. Many have preferred to just make sure the temple is taken care of and that it prospers. Yet, I remain compelled and energized to see this dream realized. I relentlessly hold to the perspective that every aspect of life can be a platform for this exciting mission of helping people follow Jesus. Paul wrote it down for his young protege, Timothy. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. The church is given this exhilarating mission of helping others follow Jesus until the whole world is reunited with God and his family. There's only one way to fix the pervasive misalignment of daily activity in the church today. The realignment starts with one person deciding to begin. One person deciding to help someone follow Jesus. And this will not happen by focusing on the execution side first. That leads to a sense of burden and feeling overwhelmed. First, it must be sparked in the heart, stoked alive deep in the soul, imagined in the mind, pictured in the eyes. From there, onward. Lesson 25. Without relentless singularity, mission creep is inevitable. Only with focus and grit does a dream burn through distraction. According to the natural law of entropy, things unravel over time and gravitate towards their most disorganized state. Eventually, chaos reigns. Without consistent focus and realignment, our dreams unravel. They unravel when distractions pull us off course. We are followers of Jesus, which means our kingdom dream will always include the ultimate calling of disciples. And because we are leaders within this movement, our dreams will by nature of the kingdom always be concerned with energizing Jesus' followers to pursue that dream. Every pursuit other than making disciples who make disciples is a distraction. Unfortunately, the challenge we face is just about as high as the stakes. Without persistent realignment, mission creep is a certainty. Why is it so hard to stay the course? Why is mission creep an inevitable reality without relentless focus? It is subtle and gradual. We're not aware that it is happening. We could describe it as a snowball effect or use the frog in the kettle metaphor to illustrate the reality. Mission creep is utterly imperceptible. There are so many attractive ideas. Ultimately, most of these attractions are distractions. It is utterly impossible to say no to the good ideas if we have not discerned and devoted ourselves to the great idea. 
Jim Collins starts his best-selling book, Good to Great, with his helpful reminder, good is the enemy of great. Maybe good isn't so great after all. Many of us have never been shown how to follow Jesus. It is very difficult to remain committed to something with relentless singularity if we have never experienced it. If we've never been in a discipling relationship, it is very easy to get distracted by ideas that are more concrete. One will almost always choose the tangible over the intangible. For many in the church today, the dream of making disciples who make disciples is an intangible pipe dream. So, we settle for the distractions. Think about this for a moment. Why do you suppose there are so many conferences within the church space on best practices and model reproductions? Why so many books with formulas and systems and checklists? Tangible trumps intangible every time. Show me how, and I have a much better shot at staying the course in pursuit of my dream. If we have never experienced the hands-on, side-by-side discovery of following Jesus, it will be less likely that we can show someone else. This is one of the major culprits when we give ourselves away to distractions. The enemy of your soul is the master of mission creep. He is real. He hates the kingdom dream. He hates the mission. His mission is to keep you pursuing anything but Jesus. Distraction is his number one tactic. And here's the kicker. He is often more focused on our unfocusing than we are focused on our dream. So how can you avoid mission creep in pursuit of your kingdom dream? As you chase after that dream, how do you remain committed to the goal of Jesus' clear mission? Learn to recognize mission creep. It's not if, it's when. You cannot avoid mission creep. It is inevitable. What you can do, however, is identify patterns in your own life and leadership that indicate mission creep so that you can react vigilantly and nip it in the bud. Once you can identify the patterns, then you can recognize it when it is happening. This simple yet difficult first step will give you the best shot at making the necessary adjustments to stay the course. Here are three common patterns in my leadership. Number one, getting caught up in the wrong goals and pursuits and measuring myself by the wrong metric, which makes hard work inefficient at best, counterproductive at worst. Number two, dismissing stories of discipling relationships as anecdotal. Number three, permitting the bulk of leadership conversations to be about the ABCs, attendance, buildings, cash, instead of nurturing a disciple-making culture. How else can we remain committed to the goal of Jesus' clear mission? Zero in on the bullseye. Be certain what you are aiming for. Clarify it. Name it. Measure it. Develop environments and systems that produce it. For example, how could you reshape your devotional time at the beginning of board meetings to help people follow Jesus? Have them read the scripture for themselves and share one or two takeaways from the passage with the rest of the group. 
you're already good at creating environments. You've figured out how to fill the seats, balance the budget, get more people to sign up, publicize the program. Now it is time to help Jesus followers follow Jesus and help their friends do the same. Lesson 26. Spell out your how and your who. Our dreams will contribute to the Great Commission, to the command to go and make disciples. This charge has been given to every Jesus follower. Our general calling is to glorify God and make disciples. To glorify God and make disciples is a phrase I use in my consulting work with my Oxano teammates when we work with churches and organizations. We start here because it is a given. We put the assumed general purpose on the table so that we can affirm it and then begin the fun work of drilling down to help this body of believers discern his or her unique part in contributing to the whole. It's no different for you. Your unique calling will be the foundation from which your dreams will emerge. And your dream will contribute to the general call to glorify God and make disciples. This is a great filter through which to analyze whether or not your dream originates in God. Ask yourself, will this dream glorify God and make disciples? How so? It is my dream that this book will play a role, however modest, in sparking a movement of dreamers. I long to see followers of Jesus dream again, this time without fear, without hesitation. Can you imagine it? Do you see it? The result would be overwhelming. What would happen if every follower of Jesus had a clearer understanding of how his or her dream contributed to the greater whole of glorifying God and making disciples? That reality would fire a movement that could not be stopped. Spell it out. Are you beginning to see your how and your who? How is your dream glorifying God and making disciples? Who is going to benefit from your dream becoming a reality? There are times in our lives when we will not be serving in our sweet spot, We will be called on to give and contribute in spaces and places that take us out of our comfort zone. And as a result, we will grow as we are stretched. We may even find our sweet spot in those challenging calls. It may be the way God helps us discover what we were meant to do. Ultimately, our dream will align with our giftedness. Our unique calling will utilize our strength and competence. So don't be afraid to explore and discover who you are uniquely designed to be and then pursue your dream with great freedom and vigor. That's what the part two of the book is all about, the realization. If you are struggling to sift through all the layers upon layers of expectations of others concerning your calling, your giftedness, perhaps this is the time to invest in yourself to discover who you are and why you are. If you are interested in this, may I suggest an in-depth personal discovery journey called Life Unique. Lesson 27. Paper is a tree wanting to be a tree again. A friend of mine works in the paper industry. One afternoon, as we were swapping stories, he dropped a little factoid about how paper is made that has stuck with me and, unexpectedly perhaps, given me a handle on hope 
in difficult times. I always knew that paper was made from trees. Those trees are harvested, broken down into little microscopic particles. Then those particles are roughed up and for a specific reason. See, it is in their nature to want to come back together again. It is in the roughing up that makes the connection so strong when they do reunite. Without being roughed up, those fibers cannot reconnect. No roughed up and reconnected tree particles, no paper. God created us in his image. We have been roughed up because of our sin. Yet it is in our DNA to be connected to our creator. We were designed by God to be in harmonious relationship with one another. Our relationships have been roughed up because of sin. It is in our DNA to be reconnected with one another. We are designed by God to be at peace with ourselves. Our self-worth and understanding have been roughed up because of sin. It is in our DNA, however, to be whole. When we are reunited by the grace and mercy of God and Jesus, it is a bond that sticks. And it is a reunion with God, with others, and with self. All of these relationships are vital for dreamers. Our dreams touch all three. Once reconnected, we are then a useful page upon which God can write. He can inscribe his name, his thoughts, his word on us for all the world to read. Paul wrote this reminder to the Jesus followers in Corinth. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. God cannot write his dream on our hearts unless we have been roughed up and reunited. Our dreams plumb depth of meaning and find strength in this paper-making word picture. God has implanted his dream DNA in each of us. You were designed to dream. So many of us don't dare to dream because all we see is brokenness and limitations. Yet, it is in that brokenness that he prepares us, just like paper, to be a beautiful letter for the world to read. Dreams are found as frequently within brokenness as they are within reparation and reconciliation. Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, inscribe upon me. Dreams are written on our lives for others' benefit as well as for ours. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-7 through 7 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, 
you will also share in the comfort God gives us. God's comfort is restorative and dream-producing. It is an unstoppable force that moves from one person to another. What an amazingly powerful thing to behold. And you are right in the middle of it. So, the lesson here is not only to embrace your challenges, but also to search for God's dream spark there. Lean into your rough places. Examine your relationship with God. Take a long, hard look at the patterns of brokenness in human relationships. Get well acquainted with your own internal battles. Within these difficulties, you may just find a dreamer waiting to be recognized. Lesson 28. Writing is important. To dream, you need to know what you want. To know what you want, you need to know who you are. Like the strong foundation of a beautiful building, writing helps you discover your truth and essence. Dreams are built upon it. The writing promise. Writing is good for the soul. Writing reveals hidden treasure. Writing clarifies complexities. Writing unearths the dream and gives it shape. Can you imagine the truths of the world, of the human condition, of God's promises, without the written word? Threefold gifts of writing. Cleansing, awareness, refining. Cleansing. Most diet plans or healthy eating regimens begin with a cleanse period. This is designed to get the toxins out and to establish a healthy foundation upon which to build a new routine. Think of writing in this way. The writing discipline allows us to get out what has been lurking in the recesses of our minds. It brings up and gets out thoughts that have been dormant. It shines a light on what has been in the shadows. You can't grasp what is indiscernible. You cannot manage what is invisible. Awareness. I'm a fan of Sherlock on Netflix. Sherlock Holmes possesses almost hyperbolic hyper-awareness. He is constantly challenging others, especially Dr. Watson, to pay closer attention to their surroundings. What do you see? In every one of those incredible rapid-fire crime scenes or character assessments, he imparts another extraordinary lesson on acute observation. Writing will help us increase awareness. What do you see? What do you think? How do you feel? Think about this. If before putting your head on your pillow at night, you would simply write down on one journal page where you saw God during your day, do you think you would be more aware of the blessings of his presence or less aware? Conversely, if you were to begin your day with a morning routine that included some writing about your day, how you were feeling, what you were hoping for, who you were going to see, what you were praying for in the lives of the people closest to you, do you think your awareness of God's activity around you, in you, and through you would be heightened? Many cannot answer the question about where they experienced God's presence throughout the day when it is posed to them. They cannot answer it because they have seldom stopped to consider him. Writing is a tool that increases awareness. Refining. 
Finding a way to express what you want to say in repeatable, understandable terms and writing it down will not only help you grasp a truth at a deeper, more profound level, it will help others understand what you are saying. I have a friend, Bob, who is always urging me to say it with fewer words, clearer, shorter, try again. He reminds me that Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is one of the most remembered speeches of all time. It lasted less than three minutes. On June 1, 1865, Senator Charles Sumner referred to the most famous speech ever given by President Abraham Lincoln. In his eulogy on the slain president, he called the Gettysburg Address a monumental act. He said Lincoln was mistaken that the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. Rather, the Bostonian remarked, the world noted at once what he said and will never cease to remember it. The battle itself was less important than the speech. One of the premier orators of the day, Edward Everett, spoke before Lincoln gave his famous speech. His speech lasted over two hours. Bet you didn't know that. Mr. Everett admired Lincoln's remarks and wrote to him the next day, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Brevity is not easy. It takes time and effort. As the old saying goes, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. This writing cocktail, C-A-R, will help you discover your dream and give it life. Utilize these three steps, and over time, your dream will stick in your heart and in the minds of others. Write, then. And to write, you need to write. There is a resistance to writing. The resistance was strong in me when I began to write. I suppose one of the reasons that resistance to writing is so strong is because of the clarity, awareness, and refining that it delivers. There are times we don't like what we see. There are times we don't want to act on what we have come to understand. The resistance is strong. The blessing is stronger still. My resistance to writing persists. I still say things like, I'll get to it later. No one will benefit from what I have to say. I've got nothing. I'm dry. After the sermon, the articles, the letters, the website copy, the course introduction, the class, I've got nothing left. That's when I need the discipline to recall the writing promises that I outlined at the beginning of this lesson. Refer to them, post them, remember them. And then, with that hope, begin writing. Even and especially when there seems that there's nothing to write about, in those moments, I apply the five-minute rule. Five-minute rule. The five-minute rule is a cognitive behavioral therapy technique for procrastination in which you set a goal of doing whatever it is you would otherwise avoid, but only do it for five minutes. If, after five minutes, it's so horrible that you have to stop, you're free to do so. Mission accomplished. Done. Three things that have helped me and will help you write. One, seek a writing accountability partner who will check in on your writing progress. Two, write only for yourself. Three, read. God gives you voice.
He gives you insight. He is with you. He is guiding you. He shows you so much. Your insight blesses others. Don't keep it to yourself. One final caveat. Sometimes we're not sure what exactly is going on in our heads until we commit thought to paper or screen. If you should choose to not share your thoughts with others, at least share them with yourself. Lesson 29. Important messages need to be repeated. For your dream to stick, it needs to be repeated so that it sticks with an audience and turns them into dream supporters. In the church world, the pressure is on to produce dynamic messages week after week. One preacher I know said, The formula for a successful church is pretty easy. Great preaching plus great music. Pretty simple. Yikes! I almost fell over in disbelief. During my six-month sabbatical, I did not miss preaching, even though I believe communication is my calling. The pressure of delivering weekly, one-way proclamations had taken its toll on this preacher. I wouldn't call it hard work. Many times, however, it feels like unproductive work. I desperately want the dream to take root in every single person who hears it. Don't all dreamers want this? I can't think of any dreamer who set out on the pursuit because they wanted to go it alone. God still has use of this gift he bestowed upon me. In my pursuit of great preaching, I am driven by the desire for transformational communication. After all, isn't that the goal of our preaching? Isn't this what great preaching is, or rather should be? To communicate and inspire transformation in the lives of our listeners? The incarnation was not merely about sending Jesus to preach. He came to communicate the way, the truth, the life. There is a place for proclamation, but we want the message to stick. I get more enthusiastic thinking about dripping a message than I do preaching one. Drip, drip, drip. Here, there, again. In one setting or another, doesn't matter where. Formal settings and informal, planned and spontaneous, staged environments and unexpected conversations. It doesn't take long for us to forget. We need reminders, constantly, like that drippy faucet, until it finally sinks in, takes hold. It's as true for me as it is for anyone else. That is, as long as we actually want the message to sink in. Is our goal in preaching transmission or transformation? If we preachers are content to simply perform and proclaim, then it is possible that his message of truth may not land, will not take root. But if we take interest in seeing the truth transform lives as evidenced by new life-sustaining behaviors, then bit by bit, drip by drip, here, there, and everywhere, we will see our influence. This lesson is not just for preachers, by the way. Anyone who dreams will eventually have a need to communicate that dream to someone. And dream communication is a complicated matter. Getting up on a platform and speaking to a crowd does not guarantee that it'll stick. 
This is even true for those who make a habit of getting up on platforms and speaking to crowds. Your message, your dream will gain support in direct correlation to how well you heed this lesson. Dreams gain momentum and support only when the dream's core message sticks. That dream sticks because it has been repeated over and over again. Different forums, different environments, different times, different metaphors, different descriptions, different constructions. Perhaps one of the most important benefits of living out this lesson and the reason it is in the dream spark part of this book is that the more you describe your dream, the more it will stick for you. You will gain confidence. You will discover new ways of expressing it. You will uncover exciting new perspectives that bring more brilliance and depth to it. Lesson 30. The end of the story reads, And he lived happily ever after. This popular phrase is more than a fairy tale ending. It is an attitudinal mantra that is available to you. It brings confidence and peace in the midst of your dream story. And I believe a perfect segue between the two parts of this book. Snuck in between a dream spark and a realization strategy, it strikes a chord. And he lived happily ever after. My friend Ron Goodsman battled multiple myeloma for more than 15 years. In one of the last conversations I had with him, he reminded me how the story ends. He was always doing that. This time, however, he was talking about his own end. Usually he was helping me redirect my thoughts in the middle of some struggle, but this time I think he was reminding himself, and he lived happily ever after. This morning as I write this, I am thinking about the funeral I will be attending in a few hours. Last night I attended the visitation. My wife Amy and I stood in line for over four hours to pay our respects. The young man who died had just turned 21 years old. I wonder how many of the people who are grieving have someone to remind them how the story ends. And he lived happily ever after. On one of the tables in the high school gymnasium, amid all of the photos of Will and his family and all of his accomplishments on the basketball court, a baptismal candle stood simply and unceremoniously. Next to it was a prayer rolled up like a scroll. What a beautiful and powerful prayer prayed for Will on his baptism day. And he lived happily ever after. Next to Pastor Goodsman's reading chair in his home in Clinton, Iowa, hung this plaque. Simply and unceremoniously, it had called his attention back to the truth. A simple printout of a hymn was cut and pasted on a plaque. My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine. Now hear me while I pray. Take all my guilt away. Oh, let me from this day be wholly thine. May thy rich grace impart strength to my fainting heart, my zeal inspire. As thou hast died for me, O may my love for thee, pure, warm, and changeless be a living fire. 
While life's dark maze I tread and grief around me spread, be thou my guide. Bid darkness turn to day, wipe sorrow's tears away, nor let me ever stray from thee aside. When ends life's transient dream, when death's cold sullen stream shall o'er me roll, blessed Savior then in love, fear and distrust remove, oh, bear me safe above a ransomed soul. That plaque hangs next to that chair still in my home. Simply and unceremoniously, it reminds me. My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine. Now hear me while I pray, take all my guilt away. Oh, let me from this day be holy thine. And he lived happily ever after. May thy rich grace impart strength to my fainting heart. My zeal inspire, as thou hast died for me. Oh, may my love for thee, pure, warm, and changeless be, a living fire. And he lived happily ever after. While life's dark maze I tread, and grief around me spread, be thou my guide. Bid darkness turn to day, wipe sorrow's tears away. Nor let me ever stray from thee aside. And he lived happily ever after. When ends life's transient dream, when death's cold, sullen stream, shall o'er me roll. Blessed Savior, then in love, fear and distrust remove. Oh, bear me safe above a ransomed soul. And he lived happily ever after. In the middle of our sin and its guilt-producing effects, and he lived happily ever after. In the middle of the all-consuming pace of our lives, exhausted and weary, and he lived happily ever after. In the middle of the confusing twists and turns of our days, unable to clearly discern our next step, and he lived happily ever after. And finally, in the midst of death, reminding us of the fragility and transient nature of this existence, 
and he live happily ever after. At the end of the pursuit of your dream, this truth stands. No matter how the dream turns out, regardless of whether or not you achieved all you wanted or hoped to achieve, and he lived happily ever after. So what if, in the midst of the effort to chase after that dream, you could remember, and he lived happily ever after? As you consider your dream, this simple phrase is the reason we can say, fear not, dream big. You can't fail. With Jesus, this end is inevitable. And he lived happily ever after.